Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. On the night of March 18, 1993, the Gingrich and Shetler families were hoping for a break. The two Amish families, along with the entire Brown Hill community of Crawford County, Pennsylvania, were hoping that Ed Gingrich's unexplained insanity might just go away. Ed hadn't really fit in with his community since his family had moved from Norwich, Ontario to Pennsylvania in the spring of 1983. The teenage Ed was surly, bit of a rebel. He liked to work with machines. He didn't seem to want to live a life dictated by strict Amish codes that didn't make any sense to him. And then over the next several years, it became clear that Ed was suffering from more than just a general frustration with the Amish way of life. What started out as disobedience and a refusal to stop associated with non-Amish friends soon progressed to something that the Amish were not equipped to handle at all. First, Ed complained that he was always itchy, tired, that he felt like his brain was about to explode. And his Amish family and friends didn't know what to do to help him. Then he started talking about God a lot about salvation, about a war between good and evil. He made a non-Amish friend named Dave Lindsay, a practicing evangelical who told Ed that if he accepted Jesus Christ under his denomination's faith, then he was bound to be saved. But if he did not, he was bound for damnation. And that went for his family too. But his wife, Katie, had no interest in switching religions. So now Ed was worried about her soul and his own. Over time, he'd be convinced that she was trying to damn him to hell. She was in league with the devil. Then Ed started hallucinating. He was seeing all kinds of things that weren't there. Giant rabbits, angels. He was behaving in the strangest of ways, trying to decipher messages out of his own spit, barking like a dog while scooting around the house on all fours. He was seriously mentally ill, and his mental illness was also making him paranoid. He accused his family of plotting to poison him when they took him to a hospital and got him medication for his paranoid schizophrenia. He said that what was really wrong with him was that he had liver cancer or that his heart was moving around inside his chest. Caught in the middle of all this, his young wife, who had married Ed in 1986, largely due to worrying about becoming an old maid. Because if she didn't uh, marry someone, uh, she was going to be an old maid, even though she was only in her early 20s. 
Ed, for his part, married Katie because of pressure too. Pressure to give up his love of technological innovation and a non-Amish life. Pressure to be a dedicated father and husband and a uh, husband to an especially faithful Amish wife. But he would not turn out to be a good father or husband. His largely untreated or mistreated mental illness did not allow for that. He was hospitalized twice for schizophrenia, given medication, and the medication he was prescribed was stopping his delusions, but his wife, Katie, who did not trust modern medicine, would agree with him that he should stop taking it. This was terrible. His condition, of course, would then worsen. As the fits of insanity became more and more frequent and intense, Ed and Katie's family members wondered what to do. Should they take him back to the hospital? Prayer and time hadn't worked. Was their faith not strong enough? Was his faith not strong enough? Was he possessed by the devil, as Bishop Rudy Shetler thought? Should they take him to an herbal healer, a man who claimed that he could see people's afflictions in their eyes? Did he just need to keep seeing a strange quack of a chiropractor who thought he could cure Ed's mental illness by pulling on his toes, twisting his ankles, and having him drink blackstrap molasses? In the midst of all this debate, Ed snapped. As Katie got ready to go to an Amish wedding, Ed walked into the kitchen, knocked her to the ground, proceeded to pummel her with his fist until she was unrecognizable. Then he put on his heavy farmer's work boots, went back inside to stomp on her face until her head was just obliterated. And then with two of his three young children watching, still watching, he disemboweled his wife, left a neat stack of her organs beside her. Then he and his children started walking down the road like everything was just fine. That's how the Mill Village, Pennsylvania law enforcement found him. From Ed's calm demeanor, they had no idea the magnitude of what they were about to encounter when they'd walk into his house. When they did see what he'd done, Ed was charged and convicted of Katie's murder. He would be released from prison March 19, 1998, after serving just four years. He then moved to an Amish mental health facility in Michigan, then Indiana, receiving further treatment there before returning to the Brown Hill Amish community in February of 2007. And then his story would take another turn or two before ending in more tragedy. Ready to dive back into the strange world of the Amish? Today we return for a much more personal tale of mental illness and religion colliding in such a tragic and unavoidable, actually completely avoidable way in a different kind of true crime, frustrating. This could have all been prevented at so many different points edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, Master Sucker, Deep State Ukrainian shill, false flag coordinator, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. Uh, recording this episode right after getting back from Charlotte, North Carolina. Had so much fun at the Comedy Zone. Uh, thanks to everyone who came out. Saturday night in particular was just amazing. Uh, also, Charlotte, what a cool city. Uh, I stayed downtown, or, or I think uptown, is it, as it's called. Uh, that city is happening. Something in the air there. Just a lot going on. It feels exciting. Feels like an exciting place to live. Uh, next up, Tempe, Arizona. The Improv, uh, 15th and 16th of April. Great club, big club. Some comics fil- film specials there. Uh, so uh, one of the shows is sold out, but there's tickets to the other ones. Uh, there's four shows total. Hope you can come. And then it's Missoula, Montana. Only about 50 tickets left uh, for the show at the Wilma on April 23rd. Then it's Good Nights in Raleigh. Back to North Carolina. Then off to Salt Lake City, Springfield, Missouri, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Davenport, Iowa, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, you can find dates for the Symphony of Insanity tour at dancummins.tv. Uh, just locked up the Parkway Theater in Minneapolis. 
Uh, shooting a special there December 10th, Saturday. The uh, tickets sold out uh, almost immediately. So we're adding shows on the 9th. You can still come and see what the special will be the next night. Uh, I know I said I was going to shoot it in St. Louis, but we just couldn't lock up the venue we wanted uh, when we wanted it. So I got to get back to St. Louis soon now to do some shows. Uh, adding some cryptids to the Bad Magic store this week. Uh, and thanks to everybody who's gotten tickets to the tour, by the way. Uh, introducing none other than the Jersey Devil and Goatman. So head on over to badmagicmerch.com, collect your favorites. Get some weird shirts inspired by our Appalachian cryptid suck. Uh, check it out. Don't see your favorite monster? Well, let us know on Instagram which cryptids we should do next by using the hashtag TimesuckCryptid. And then one last announcement, charity. This month, our donation going to helping Ukraine. We're donating to Lifting Hands International, whose mission statement is we provide aid to refugees both at home and abroad. No politics, simply humanitarian. They have been boots on the ground in a variety of places for refugees and currently are stationed in Moldova and Romania, aiding in evacuating Ukrainians, providing meals and so much more to those who have been evacuated. If you're looking for a way to help those uh, in crisis in Ukraine, you can go to liftinghandsinternational.org. Look for the urgent Ukraine banner at the top. So many ways you can help, including sending care packages uh, to those in Ukraine. We continue to be amazed by the resilience of the Ukrainian people and carry them in our thoughts and hearts every day. Uh, our donation amount, TBD, as I record this in advance, uh, we'll keep you posted as soon as we make that donation. Uh, thanks so much to the Patreon Spacesers for making it possible to donate to worthy causes like this every month. And then now time to set some tone for today's show. Uh, super sucker and good Christian, uh, Elise Helmick, called me out. And it feels like this update belongs here and not at the end. It's a quick one and pertains to today's episode. Elise writes, I uh, feel like this keeps coming up. Uh, Sir Suckington, I wish you would understand. Feels like you've been dogging on Christians a lot, and for someone uh, who, for the most part, seems very tolerant of a lot, the traditional views of Christ's followers seem to be thrown under the bus a lot recently. Just because you don't understand the beliefs of others, just because you don't understand God, doesn't make us wackadoodles or devoid of critical and rational thinking. Faith is a powerful thing. Uh, Praying for you regardless, keep on making badass podcasts because I love them and will continue to listen to them all. Elise. Well, Elise, uh, thank you for the prayers, uh, seriously. And thanks for calling me out. I was just thinking the night before your message came in, about addressing this on my own. It was weighing on my mind, and then this came in. So yeah, it was, it was, it was my own little sign to, uh, to talk about this. Yeah, I, I keep covering only the terrible side of faith, uh, specifically often Christian faith, and how it affects people's lives in negative ways, as it will tremendously for today's subject, Ed Gingrich, and for his wife and children. Uh, I get mad at the social control, natural impulse, oppression, judgment, the denial of human nature, rejection of science, and critical thinking aspects of some members of some denominations and offshoots of Christianity, uh, some that they possess. But I do know, and I should say this more often, that many Christians, uh, some of the most tolerant people out there, very forgiving, very accepting, right? Very tolerant. Uh, so like, like you must be to keep listening. <laughs> so, so sorry, I shouldn't only focus on the negative. That's not fair. And uh, you were right to call me out and I'm glad you did. So I apologize. Uh, that being said, I am on a fucking hammer on certain Amish beliefs today because ah, some of their beliefs are objectively not good. I understand faith. I do understand the nature of believing in things that are not real. But when you let that belief intervene in ways that are needlessly, truly destructive and negative and damaging, I got a comment and it can't be positive. So I hope you understand, Elise. And I think you do. I think, I think you will. Okay. So now for another dive back into the world of the Amish. Uh, so quickly we return. Spaces has voted this topic in and they made a great choice. This will not be anything like our previous episode on the Amish. That was an overview of their history, lifestyle, recent controversies. This is much uh, more singularly focused. In this episode, we'll dive into a very specific time and place 
in one Amish community, the Brown Hill Settlement in the early 1990s. That's where we do most of our focus. We'll cover a truly horrifying crime that happened there and events that led up to it, learning a bit more about the Amish ways as we do. So there will be some of that. Uh, first, I'll add a little, little Amish culture refresher. Then we'll explore how the Amish handle crime and punishment. Uh, we'll learn about mental illness, the kind Ed was afflicted with, paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, the meat of this episode will be a timeline of Ed's life. I thought this episode would be interesting, and it ended up being far more interesting than I expected. So let's get into it. Uh, journeying back into the realm of true crime now, though, again, uh, in a way we don't often cover here. Uh, you know, we're fully back in the land of the Amish, not the setting for violent crimes normally. Uh, overall, they seem to be an especially nonviolent group, right? The Amish are forbidden, they believe, by Christ to become involved in any warfare or violence. They do not defend themselves if attacked. Historically, when faced with hostile neighbors or governments, they have simply abandoned their farms and moved on. And I, I feel like I, I probably should admire that. I don't know that I do. Uh, I admire their conviction to their beliefs here, but not fighting to keep what's yours. I do have a hard time wrapping my head around that. I don't know. Feels like a good way to end up uh, dead or homeless. But again, they you know they don't take their convictions lightly. Uh, they really seem to practice what they preach in regards to nonviolence. After that 2006 West Nickel Mines uh, school shooting in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, we talked about in the previous Amish episode when five Amish children were killed by deranged gunman Charles Carl Roberts and another five were wounded. The Amish families of the victims immediately forgave the shooter who shot himself in the attack and they extended condolences and to uh, condolences, uh, you know, sorry, to the family of the shooter, an exceptionally nonviolent group. So now for that uh, Amish refresher, I understand that not everyone who listened to this episode uh, also listened to uh, episode 284 or remembers it all if they did. I needed a refresher myself. So the Amish, they're a religious group who live almost exclusively in settlements in the U.S. and Canada. As of 2015, there have been a handful of Amish in South America not many, though. One small settlement in Bolivia, one uh, small settlement in Argentina. The beachy Amish have communities in Europe, Africa, across Latin America, uh, but that offshoot, a lot more Mennonite than Amish, in my opinion. Uh, not who most of us think of when we think of the Amish. They're not part of the horse and buggy crowd we're talking about today. The Amish stress humility, uh, family, community, self-sufficiency, uniformity, separation, real big on uniformity. Wear the wrong color suspenders and you are banished. Brother Hezekiah, we can see your ankles, Sister Margaret Adiah. Stop trying to destroy our community with your Jezebel ways. Have them covered by tomorrow. Find a new home. Uh, the Amish were part of the early Anabaptist movement in Europe, uh, part of the Protestant Reformation. Anabaptists believed uh, strongly that only adults who, you know, confess their faith should be baptized. Not stupid babies who might be little devil God haters. Right? They should uh, also remain separate from the larger society to avoid the devil's temptations. European Catholics, other Protestants were uh, not fans of the early Anabaptists. Uh, they put many early Anabaptists to death, considering them to be heretics. Baptize your babies or be drowned, hanged or burned. Right? We're not just going to stand by and let you Anabaptists condemn your baby souls to hell by not sprinkling some magic wizard water on their foreheads. This persecution soon led uh, many Baptists, including the Amish, who formed at the tail end of the 17th century to flee to America. They settled first in Pennsylvania, establishing their initial settlement in Berks County in 1740. And they've been in Pennsylvania ever since, also expanding into Canada and many other U.S. states. The Amish from the beginning have centered their lives around farming, hard manual labor, long days of simple work, a, a bit of their, a big part, excuse me, of their culture. And rather than churches, they hold their worship services in members' homes. 
rotating services from home to home to reinforce, you know, very tightly knit insular communities. Uh, they are they are especially insular. They don't do missionary work. Ninety nine point nine percent of the Amish, you know, were born into this religion. One source I found says that uh, less than a hundred people in America have ever converted to the Amish Church and actually stayed for any length of time. Another source says that maybe up to two hundred people have converted total. Since they don't share records regarding much of anything, don't keep records regarding much of anything. Uh, because they don't communicate frequently with the non-Amish world as well. This is all pretty speculative, but everyone agrees it is exceptionally rare. It, it would be hard to find a way into their communities. While the Amish don't have arranged marriages, they also are not allowed to date outsiders for the most part, right? Must choose a partner from within the community. Outsiders, non-Amish, uh, English as they're called, uh, are not permitted to marry within the Amish community. Young Amish person on Rumspringa, you know, when uh, teens, generally the age of 16, are allowed to explore the outside world so that they can choose to return home and become Amish and be baptized in the Amish faith, right, lifestyle. They could theoretically bring someone into the faith and then marry them, but that person would have to become fully Amish, live within the community, live by the community's many, many rules, right? So many rules from how long your beard can be to how it's trimmed to what color of suspenders you can wear, how wide the brim of your hat must be, etc. And because of all these rules, how strict it is, again, very few people ever think, oh, cool, sounds awesome. I can never watch TV again or listen to any recorded music or use a microwave or have a cell phone or a car or central AC or almost anything else good. And I'll be told what I get to wear every day, where I have to be every day, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Sign me up. Modern day Amish uh, differ very little from their early end of the 17th century, dawn of the 18th century predecessors. Uh, old order groups, the groups with the most rules and restrictions, such as the one Ed Gingrich belonged to, they all still drive horses and buggies rather than cars. They do not have electricity. They don't have cell phones or computers. They send their children to private one-room Amish schoolhouses, etc. Children in these communities uh, only attend school through the eighth grade. And after that, they work on their family's farm or some other Amish-approved business right? Uh, they, until they uh, marry. Well, they work on the family's farm until they marry. Then they can have their own farm. Or they can, you know, sometimes work on somebody else's business. Uh, the rules differ a bit from settlement to settlement, but the lifestyle, always strict. Uh, each settlement does have their own ordung, or ordnung, a collection of settlements, uh, their, their rules, largely unwritten. Most Amish thinks these rules, you know, forbidden to even use tractors and power-driven machinery to do their farming. No, sir. You start using too much machinery, well, now you might make too much money. Start thinking you're hot shit. Might want to live in a bigger house than brother horses only a Akaya. You know, now the now the conformity of the settlement is eroding and where there is no conformity, there is ego. And where there is ego, there is room for the devil to sneak in and completely destroy your soul. Suddenly, instead of farming all day with a horse drowned plow, well, well, now you have enough, uh, you know, energy to want to play Monopoly. Teaching you the devil's competitive ways. You might want to try out uh, 69 in your partner. Gross. What are you doing sexually experimenting? You might like that so much you start thinking about uh, that during Sunday services instead of thinking about uh, how you can't wait to die and get off this filthy, uh, you know, shithole of a planet. So many rules. So many rules uh, partially enforced to make sure that you have to work all the time. Truly, that's part of why there's the rules. The Amish not believers in the concept of work smarter, not harder. They seem to firmly preach the opposite. Work harder, not smarter. Work longer. Work all the time. The more you work, the less time you have to, I don't know, think about how batshit crazy it all is. Uh, bottled gas can be used to operate water heater stoves and refrigerators in many old order communities. Gas pressured uh, lanterns and lamps can be used to light homes, barns, and shops, but not battery powered. 
stuff in most cases. Not electricity. Keep Satan's electrical fire out of the community. Gas is acceptable because it's seen as uh, more natural. It's more godly. Uh, closer to how life was, uh, you know, back when the Amish got started in 1693. Electric- electricity, man-made power. Mm-mm, ego, not godly. Uh, clothes, as I touched on already, also heavily regulated. Old order Amish women and girls wear modest dresses made from solid colored fabric with long sleeves and a full skirt. Their dresses, you know, covered with an apron, fastened with straight pins or snaps. They never cut their hair, which they wear in a bun on the back of the head. On their heads, they wear a white prayer covering if they're married, a black one if they are single and ready to not really mingle. Uh, men and boys wear dark colored suits, straight cut coats, broad trousers, suspenders, solid colored shirts, uh, black socks and shoes, black or straw brimmed, uh, broad brimmed hats. Their shirts fashioned with conventional buttons, but their suit coats fashion, uh, fasten, fasten with hooks and eyes. Lamas feel these distinctive clothes encourage humility and separation from the world. Right? Be humble, have a bowl cut, look like an idiot, right? Keeps you not uh, being focused on vanity. Uh, truly, facial hair also regulated, right? Amish men do not have mustaches, a.k.a. the devil's pussy and ball ticklers, but they do grow beards after they marry. And speaking of marriage, uh, no such thing as an Amish divorce once you get married. I don't remember the, uh, coming across that, uh, doing uh, the research for the uh, episode 284 in the Amish. Not allowed to get divorced. In the eyes of the church, if an Amish church member should get a divorce, the the person initiating the divorce would then have to leave the Amish faith, which would uh, result in them being shunned, right? And then the spouse of the one who gets the divorce, also punished in God's divine wisdom, uh, they would never be allowed to remarry again if they wanted to remain Amish, as this would be considered adultery since the divorce, while it may be legal, would not be recognized within the Amish faith. Isn't that crazy? So many fucking rules. So many rules that to me seem needlessly harmful. I'm sure you can see, I hope you can see how not allowing divorce is a great way to open up the door to just a a never ending stream of domestic violence, spousal rape, child abuse, sexual abuse, etc. And there have been some terrible cases of Amish settlement leaders ignoring brazen domestic abuse within families and and of banishing some of those who dared to speak out about about it, right? Especially if they speak out to uh, people outside of the Amish community. Tragic and unnecessary. This policy could also lead to, say, someone being murdered by their spouse, like what happens in today's tale with Edward Gingrich. This policy definitely contributed to his wife Katie's death. He abused her before he killed her. And no one did much about it. No one wanted to intervene, not intervening part of the Amish way. Uh, There aren't good structures within Amish communities to intervene and adequately uh, judge and punish offenders. In a community that is largely left to police itself, there are no courts, no set of formal punishments attached to any given transgression, right? And that is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. The more I learn about the Amish life, uh, just the less of a fan of it I am. No matter what the crime, if the perpetrator uh, professes repentance before the church community, they are forgiven, says historian Deborah Morse Khan, who studied and wrote about the Amish extensively before she passed away in 2019. As we know from the uh, last episode of the Amish, this has disastrous effects on victims. One father who sexually abused his daughter only got six weeks of shunning for his depraved acts. No one look at Todd for six weeks. Don't talk to the Todd diddler. Not until May 15th. Then everything's cool again. Then we can pretend he's not a dirty pedophile. Uh, The allegations of Amish crime victims, especially when they're women or children, are frequently not believed. In their very patriarchal subculture, a man's word carries more weight than a woman or a child's word, which is obviously mostly fucking awesome and good and right and as God intends. 
Uh, no, uh, it's terrible. It leads to victims getting in trouble, uh, you know, for lying and to perpetrators getting off scot-free, you know, and I, by lying, I mean, not lying, telling the truth, but being accused of lying. Uh, when a victim is believed, the punishment is decided by the bishop in most cases, highest ranking member of the Amish clergy, sometimes with the most serious allegations, other bishops from other communities will step in and help solve it. Uh, there'll be a whole gaggle of bowl cut having bearded maniacs with junior high educations uh, forming a punitive think tank. Fuck yeah, bro. Uh, what a fantastic system. It doesn't work out that well. Uh, the worst punishment you can get is not to be imprisoned, uh, not to be like executed. No, you could be excommunicated. You can be banned from the settlement for life, but only if you're utterly unrepentant. As long as you're repentant, you don't have to worry uh, that much about punishment. Uh, as long as you're willing to repent, you could probably, I don't know, molest literally every single kid on the whole settlement. Uh, maybe run around, you know, one day, just punching every woman in the face. Maybe also bend over every man and rape them. And after all that, you know, you're going to receive a stern shunning. Get out of here for a year, brother Michael Adair, ding dong. We need time for our spirit and our buttholes to heal. And you need to bring that devil boner to heal. Make him mind. Then we'll gladly have you back. Uh, Ed, despite numerous instances of domestic violence leading up to the murder of Katie, uh, he would never even be shunned. Why not? Maybe because he was too important to the community. He was good at fixing buggies and keeping their sawmill running. Or maybe because, uh, again, intervening in matters between husband and wife, not really the Amish way. Eventually, though, family members would intervene. Ed's mental illness it kind of forced their hands. So let's talk about that illness now. Paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, improperly treated paranoid schizophrenia. Ed was continually encouraged to get bullshit non-Western medicine treatment for his very serious mental illness. Uh, or when he would get the proper treatment, he was not encouraged to stick with it. He was encouraged to abandon it. His Amish community mistakenly thought folk cures and faith could fix him. But that is not how mental illness works. You cannot just pray it away. So what is paranoid schizophrenia? How is it treated ideally? Uh, paranoid schizophrenia is essentially super fucking fun. If you have it, congrats. Oh, what a lucky duck. Holy shit, you have won the fun lottery. Paranoid schizophrenia is basically like always having a, a nice hefty dose of quality LSD in your bloodstream that you can turn on or off at will. That's the best part of paranoid schizophrenia. You choose when you want to hallucinate or fill your brain with powerful delusions. You want to have a normal lunch by yourself and then just head back to work? No problemo. Just leave it turned off. Easy peasy. You want to have lunch with, with a dead relative or maybe Marilyn Monroe or a demon? Uh, you want to feel convinced that if you don't kill Charlie Sheen, and soon the earth is going to rip itself apart, we'll all fall inside, be eaten by bloodthirsty reptilians, well then turn it on. Enjoy a fun ride. If things get too scary, just think, I'd like to take a break now, please, and bingo, bango, back to normal you go. Just like that. Again, the best part about paranoid schizophrenia is that it's a choice. It's entirely up to you if you want to feel crazy or not. And because of that, you don't ever need treatment. And you certainly don't need meds. <laughs> no, meds are what the fucking hollow earth reptilians want you to take. Because that's what's going to keep Tarsina alive. And it's going to send us all into a bloody, get ready to be eaten Armageddon. No, 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 no. Now, uh, paranoid schizophrenia is a very serious and severe form of mental illness that if you, if you don't want to have your life become totally unmanageable, you have to take very seriously. You have to find a great psychiatrist who will work with you to have you take the right medication for you, uh, follow the correct treatment plan. You'll need a great support system around you. Make sure your paranoia and delusions and hallucinations uh, do not drive you to stop following the treatment plan. Paranoid schizophrenia or schizophrenia with paranoia 
as many doctors now call it, uh, is characterized by many of the symptoms of regular schizophrenia, including delusions and hallucinations, and also fun feelings of paranoia, an unjustified suspicion and mistrust of other people or their actions, and or the unwarranted or delusional belief that one is being persecuted, harassed, or betrayed by others. This illness dangerously blurs the line between what is real and what is not, making it very difficult for the person who has it to lead a typical life during an active psychotic state. Your mind is not processing reality correctly, which is a wee bit problematic when you're trying to live a normal life. Schizophrenia occurs in about 1 in 222 adults, 0.45% of the adult population, according to 2022 World Health Organization statistics. Overall, including children, it affects 1 in 300, 0.32% of the population. So not super common, but not really that uncommon either. Uh, Luckily, how severe schizophrenia is varies from person to person. Some people do not have severe cases. Some people have one psychotic episode in their life and it'll never come back. Some will never have any. Some will never even know they have it. Others will have many episodes during their lifetime, but lead relatively normal lives in between episodes. Uh, Still, others may have more and more trouble functioning over time with little improvement between full-blown psychotic episodes. When they're not having an episode, they'll experience a multitude of other debilitating symptoms like extreme fatigue, headaches, depression, much more. In general, for most sufferers, it seems, if left untreated, symptoms worsen over time. This will definitely be the case with Ed Gingrich, who seemed to have a very severe case of this. Uh, How do you get it? Well, did not know this either before this week. You catch it from someone else who has it. Paranoid schizophrenia is actually fairly contagious. It's the only known serious mental illness that is contagious. It's a virus distantly related to the herpes virus, uh, thought to be spread through the air though. And if someone with schizophrenia sneezes on you, coughs around you, uh, you breathe in that air, there is a chance that you will get it. But as long as you spin around three times, count backwards from 13, sharpen a stainless steel sword every night right before you go to bed, and you have to go to bed at exactly 10, 12 p.m., you can't catch it. As long as you refuse to make direct eye contact with the goblins and the gremlins that only you can see, but they're definitely real and always trying to talk you into eating uh, AA batteries (laughs) and time traveling, but you can't get it. (laughs) I'm being ridiculous, of course. But those are the kind of things that you will actually believe, possibly, during a full-blown psychotic episode. It's a fucking terrifying disease. Uh, The exact cause of schizophrenia, not known, which I think makes it even scarier. Uh, Seems to run in families, which means you have a, a greater likelihood to have schizophrenia if your parents aunts or uncles, or grandparents have it. Uh, Thought that certain environmental triggers can cause a disorder to become active, like you could have it, but it's latent. It's in your blood or your brain. Uh, But like someone carrying a virus who is asymptomatic, it doesn't really affect your life. But then maybe a viral infection, exposure to certain mind-altering substances like various hallucinogens, damn it, Uh, even marijuana can activate it. It is currently thought highly stressful situations may also trigger schizophrenia in people whose genes make them more likely to get the disorder. Uh, Schizophrenia most often seems to surface when the body is undergoing hormonal and physical changes, like those that happen during the teen and young adult years. The average age of onset is is late adolescence to early adulthood, usually between the ages of 18 and 30. Highly unusual for schizophrenia to be diagnosed in anyone uh, after the age of 45 or before the age of 16. Onset in males typically occurs earlier in life than females. Early symptoms of schizophrenia may seem rather ordinary. Uh, Could be explained by a number of other factors, which makes it real hard to detect until you start to have the more serious hallmark symptoms. Uh, Early symptoms can include socializing less often with friends, right? You're withdrawn, trouble sleeping, 
irritability, no longer caring about things that were once important to you, like work, uh, grades, and school. Uh, during the onset of schizophrenia, otherwise known as the prodromal, uh, pro, <laughs> prodromal, prodromal phase, never seen that word before, uh, other symptoms mount. Right? These symptoms might include an increasing lack of motivation, decreasing inability to pay attention, social isolation. Ed would exhibit these. Uh, all these symptoms appear in advance. The big, most debilitating symptoms, right? The hallmark of schizophrenia, which is uh, the symptoms you, you get when you have a full-blown psychotic episode. Psychosis occurs when people lose contact with reality. How much contact varies from person to person, episode to episode. Uh, this, this episode, the psychotic break, uh, might involve seeing or hearing things that other people cannot see or hear, hallucinations, uh, and or believing things that are not true, right? Delusions. Most psychotic episodes won't last for more than a month. Some last for no more than, you know, hour or two. But in rare cases, uh, especially when the disease is untreated, they can last for six months or longer, like continuously. How fucking terrifying to lose contact with reality for six months or more. Easy to see how that would mess up your life plans just a little bit. Uh, pretty hard to make any progress in your personal or professional life when you lose touch with reality for months. When you're seeing shit that's not there, hearing things that are that are not happening, uh, you know, if hallucinations weren't bad enough, your brain's also convincing you of shit that's not true. Maybe that the deep state is real and, uh, you know, most people you see aren't real. They're robots created by the deep state to control actual living people who are having their life energy harvested wirelessly from cell towers to feed reptilian overlords living inside the earth. But you can free humanity if you find out, uh, you know, who one of the robots are and then access their hard drive, which is inside their skull. So you have to cut some people open to see if they're a man or machine. You also have to make sure that you're not a machine. Maybe you cut inside yourself a little bit looking for some wires or mechanical parts. Your delusion doesn't have to make any sense. Often does not make any sense. Because your brain is not working properly and you're paranoid. Why doesn't anyone believe in the robots? Uh, why don't they take my claims more seriously? Because they're all in on it. They're trying to get me, right? It's, oh my God, your brain is working against you in the worst ways. Uh, warning signs that psychosis may be imminent or, uh, you know, I've already arrived include, yeah, seeing, hearing, tasting things that others do not, uh, suspiciousness, general fear of others' intentions, persistent, unusual thoughts or beliefs, uh, difficulty thinking clearly, withdrawing from family or friends, and a significant decline in self-care. When schizophrenia is diagnosed, antipsychotic medication is most typically prescribed. Uh, this uh, medication can be given via pills, patches, injections. Uh, there are long-term injections for some drugs that have been developed, which help eliminate the problems of a paranoid patient struggling with reality uh, from convincing themselves that they should not regularly take their medication, a common concern for obvious reasons with paranoid schizophrenia, called medication noncompliance. Uh, too bad Ed was not given a drug that way because medication noncompliance was a real problem for him. Even more so than, than usual with a paranoid a schizophrenic patient because Ed didn't have much faith in traditional medicine to begin with due to his Amish upbringing and neither did anyone around him. The Amish believe that medicine can help but that God alone heals. And that belief is very problematic in cases of serious mental illness. Right? Are you struggling with clinical depression because your brain chemistry is not balanced right and you're biologically not geared for happiness and literally only medication will fix that shit? Well, tough. Don't believe the lies of godless, arrogant Western doctors. Only God can heal. And if your faith was stronger, you wouldn't be sad or paranoid or delusional or hallucinating. Right? That kind of belief system invariably creates a, a sort of victim-shaming culture around mental illness and, and a very dismissive attitude towards proper treatment. 
They can lead people to believe that their mental illness is a result of a, of a character defect, a character flaw, not the result of random genetics. So now you have paranoid schizophrenia and you just have low self-esteem, right? Now you have clinical depression, you know, compounded by the fact that it's your fault. Not if you just had more faith, if you just prayed harder, you'd be fine. Medication compliance are a real problem, even for schizophrenic uh, patients who do believe in treatment, because by the time you know you, you need it, you don't have a good grasp on reality. You're paranoid. You're thinking they're poisoning you. How terrible. Schizophrenic patients frequently exhibit non-compliance because of something called, uh, another crazy word that I never had to say before, uh, anasonosa. <laughs> oh my gosh, anasonosia. Anasonosia. Fucking eight medical students listening right now are like, oh yeah, that's how you say it. Uh, it's a lack of insight and an awareness of the presence of a disorder. Oftentimes, someone with schizophrenia doesn't recognize that their behavior, hallucinations, uh, delusions are unusual or unfounded, right? Because they're very real to them. Why take antipsychotic medication if you don't have a problem, right? You're not crazy to believe that you have to kill Charlie Sheen to keep everyone you know and love from being eaten by reptilians. Everyone else who doesn't recognize this obvious truth, they're the crazy people. And again, scary. Uh, Thinking that there is nothing wrong, people stop participating in therapy as well. And the combo of no longer taking meds, not going to therapy, quite often leads to relapse into an active psychotic state, active phase psychosis. Another issue that can often lead to patients refusing to take their medication are the terrible side effects that you can get from taking antipsychotics. Uh, Side effects of antipsychotic medication can include weight gain, drowsiness, restlessness, nausea, vomiting, uh, low blood pressure, dry mouth, not being willing to do what is necessary regarding Charlie Shane and the lizard people, uh, lowered white blood cell count, on and on. Medication can also lead to the development of movement disorders uh, like tremors and tics. Thankfully, these are more common with older generation antipsychotics known as first generation or typicals, uh, not with newer generation antipsychotics known as second generation or atypicals. Uh, luckily, there's a lot of different antipsychotic medications. So when one doesn't work or when one uh, has side effects that are too severe, psychiatrists you know, have a lot of other medications they can try. Unfortunately, some are much more expensive than others, which could lead to a whole separate conversation we could have about how fucked up our healthcare system is, right? If you don't have insurance, you might only have to pay, you know, 12 bucks a month uh, to get your medication, or you might have to pay a thousand or more to get the medication you need to not have your life completely fucking fall apart. And that cost doesn't include the separate cost of therapy. Psychotherapy plays an important role in the treatment of schizophrenia. Cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown to help patients develop and retain social skills, uh, alleviate anxiety and depression symptoms, uh, cope with trauma, improve relationships with family and friends, support occupational recovery, and much more. Ed, unsurprisingly, would get almost zero therapy. Once he was released from a few hospital stays he was taken to after really freaking people the fuck out, uh, th- he would do almost zero follow-up therapy. His treatment would mostly revolve around foot rubs and toe pulls given to him by a chiropractor and con artist uh, or maybe another mentally ill person named Dr. Terrell. We'll get into him later. Jesus, he's crazy. Spoiler alert, uh, uh, getting weird toe pulls from a shitty chiropractor uh, will not help Ed's schizophrenia. How the fuck did his Amish brethren think that would work? Well, I mean, in a word, ignorance. Uh, this so perfectly illustrates the importance of education. If we trust the scientific process, if we continue to improve medicine and tech and focus on the accumulation of secular knowledge, we don't have to keep doing stupid medieval shit like trying to cure mental illness with prayer and topols. Adding to Ed not getting the proper treatment for an inability to properly process reality was the fact that he was living in a community that is also kind of detached from reality. Uh, 
right? His life without schizophrenia was already enough in many ways to make him feel crazy. Uh, He'd been told his whole life that, you know, God will punish you if you drive a car, that it's sinful to have a fucking mustache. Uh, His mental illness was layering more confusion on top of an already pretty thick coat of confusion, right? Nice little base layer of what the fuck are we doing here? Uh, Then adding further to Ed's confusion was the influence of some nearby Christian evangelicals he came into contact with. You know, now he has two groups of people telling him that if he doesn't follow their nonsensical rules, he will burn in hell and he can't follow both groups' rules since following the teachings of either group will put him in conflict at odds with the other group, so that's fun. Uh, When Ed killed his wife, Katie, in his extremely warped reality, he was delusionally focused on salvation, thinking Katie was actively keeping him from being saved. She was in league with the devil. She needed to be stopped. He was so gone that uh, after he killed her, he thought he could kind of rebuild her, possibly somehow. Okay, uh, enough setup now. Enough story teasing. Let's actually get into the deep thrust parts of this. Let's dig into the meat of this literally insane narrative in today's Time Suck timeline. Right after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Sleep? Read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. 
Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks for listening to our sponsors, Meet Zacks. Truly appreciate it. Uh, so thankful we have them. Now let's really get into the strange story of Ed Gingerich. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Uh, not a whole lot known about most of Ed Gingrich's early life because, you know, being Amish, he led a very private life away from the public and not recorded. But we do know that Edward Gingrich, born on August 12th, 1966, in a small Amish enclave, clustered around the town of Norwich in southeastern Ontario. Of course, of course, he's Canadian Amish, right? Canadians, in my experience, they're just, they're different. They're just, they're more murderous. I just, it's something in their blood. Had he been born in America, the tragic murder he committed would probably have never happened. We're, we're just a much, much more peaceful, uh, rational bunch down here. Sarcasm. Uh, no, uh, Ed's parents were Daniel, known as Danny, born in 1935. And then his mother, Mary, also known as Danny, born in 1941. <laughs> uh, JK, no, she wasn't also known as Danny. That would be so great, though, for storytelling purposes. This is my dad, Danny. This is my mom, also Danny. Danny and Danny. Uh, Mary's maiden name was Shetler. She was distantly related to Ed's future wife, Mary Shetler. Not uncommon for this to happen in the Amish community, as we learned before. Uh, shallow genetic pool plus limited education. I- I'm sure that no more crazy stories will come from this group in the future. Uh, Ed's oldest brother, born in 1963, was Atlee, followed by his brother Joseph in 1964. Uh, the brother he was closest to was his younger brother, Daniel, uh, born in 1967. Uh, pretty disappointed that none of his uh, brothers here named uh, like uh, Nebuchadnezzar or Michael Adiah. 
right? His numerous other siblings, not named in sources. Well, maybe some of them have a fun, more fun names. Uh, the Brownhill Amish community Edward was part of, as I mentioned, was a, a part of an old order Amish community. He, was, he wasn't in one of those half-ass beachy motherfuckers, right? One of those groups. He was raised all in. He grew up without electronic luxuries like televisions or telephones. They didn't have electricity, indoor plumbing in his home, right? As one is supposed to live. I uh, never went to the mall, never attended a traditional school. Uh, but that didn't necessarily mean that, you know, Ed followed all the rules perfectly. He was known to be a, a bit of a rebel dotty. As a child, he was said to be a practical joker and something of a show off. He liked to goof around and uh, he liked to have, <sighs> you're going to want to, you're going to want to make sure you're sitting down for this because this is uh, disturbing. He, uh, he, liked, he liked to have fun, you guys. As a child, he liked to have fun. What the fuck? Uh, no, uh, maybe too much fun and not enough work. Uh, and he was too curious. While he was destined to grow up and be an Amish farmer like uh, those before him, he didn't want to be. He was more interested in mechanics and technology, right? Ugh, yikes. He engaged a lot of non-Amish outsiders growing up, which fueled his desire to uh, want more out of life and leave. His community fucked up. You got to keep Amish kids on the settlement. You can't let them find out how much your community sucks compared to basically every other settlement in the world. (laughs) They get one taste of comic books or root beer or peanut M&Ms or yo-yos. Well, now you're never going to get the devil out of them. Right? Oh, man, you got to be careful. Also, never let him listen to Striper. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That's the gateway into harder rock. Uh, but as much as he dreamed of moving away and joining modern life, uh, he didn't have the guts to do it, uh, which, I mean, would have taken a lot of guts. To, you know, hard to turn your back on uh, everything, everyone you've ever known. Insanely difficult. I can't, uh, I, I can't believe some people have done that. So impressive. Uh, when Ed was 16, he and his family moved from Ontario to a 150-acre farm located in Crawford County, Pennsylvania, 30 miles south of Erie. This is the spring of 1983. Uh, but you know, um, there was gonna, there was gonna be no hope for him once he got to America because it was, it was too late. He had spent too much time on Canadian soil, the hockey, uh, the poutine, it had, it had poisoned his blood. It made him too violent. I uh, know the nearest town mill village, uh, not really a town, a few hundred people scattered about in a loose assortment of houses. Currently, from what I can tell on the map, there's only one business there, the village tavern. It does look like it has good burgers, good fries, cold beer. It is ranked number one out of one restaurant in the area on TripAdvisor. <laughs> I love that. I saw it at first when I looked it up, I was like, number one, that's cool. And I love that it said one out of one, one out of one restaurants in the area. Uh, I doubt it even existed in 1983. Based on photos, it doesn't look that, that old. So maybe there was no restaurants back then. Just like they liked it. A couple miles north was a highway, Route 6, 14 miles to the west of the settlement, I-76, which connected Erie to Pittsburgh, 125 miles to the south. Sounds dangerously close to a freeway. Uh, Edward's parents, Danny and Danny, uh, I mean, Danny Mary and his seven brothers and two sisters, the first of seven Amish groups to move to this section of northwestern Pennsylvania. Danny Gingrich had brought his family to Pennsylvania because unlike Ontario, there were no government restrictions on dairy farming. We like restrictions, just not dairy farming restrictions. Uh, by this time, Ed then called Eddie and completed his eight or his eight grades, excuse me, of formal Amish education in a one-room schoolhouse in Norwich. So he was basically like an Amish doctor or professor now. He was as educated as he gets in the settlement. He could read and write. He could add and subtract small numbers without a calculator, which was important since he was not allowed to use a calculator. Uh, for real though, he was an average student noted for being uh, better than average at reading. Also said to be moody, a little bit, get a little bit snappy, quick to get in schoolyard fights. Some people thought he was a little bit of a bully because he was taller than most of the other kids. 
After graduating from Amish school at the ripe age of 14, time for long days of farm labor, which he hated. I can't imagine that uh, that many 14-year-olds love it. Sometimes he pretended to be sick to get out of his chores. He had a reputation for being a slacker. His father hoped he'd outgrow his laziness and start living the good Amish life. Also had a tendency to lie. He was a, he was a real black sheep. Eddie was more curious about the outside world than his siblings were, right? His, uh, he's a curious, he was a curious guy. Uh, the more he looked towards the outside world, the less he liked the world of the Amish. I get it. Danny and Danny worried about their son, kind of. Uh, they didn't have too much time to worry. They were busy farming and raising nine other kids. Uh, the Gingrich Farm was in the heart of the Rockdale Township, a sparsely populated region of hardwood forests and rolling pastures. The farm had three main buildings, one of them a massive red barn. But the two-story house across the street where the Gingriches lived was a small, uh, run-down little place. And then there was another building that was just basically a shack. Six, Amish, uh, six small non-Amish farms boarded the Gingrich's new place. Dangerous. Playing with fire, right? Uh, pretty close to heathens. Surrounded by them and their worldly influences. This proximity would lead to problems with Ed, actually. Their non-farming neighbors were mostly blue-collar farmers living in houses with cement block steps and trailers with rabbit cages, outdoor swing sets, above-ground swimming pools, snowplow blades, left laying about random junk cluttering the lawns. Uh, I can picture it all well. In April, the other Amish families started showing up. One group came from Greenville, Michigan, uh, another from Jamestown, New York. These people like Danny, unlike Ed, they believed they had found the perfect place to raise their families. I can't even smell fun here. This is, this is where I'm supposed to be. Uh, there were fertile farms, woods nearby, providing lumber for homes and barns, as well as fuel for heating and cooking. Uh, deer were abundant and provided food. Union City, a town right, a few miles to the east, was uh, reachable by buggy. Casey Amish needed anything, and by anything, I mean, you know, maybe parts to repair a wagon with, flour, salt, basic necessities. N- no bugging on into town to get egg McMuffins or a can of Dr. Pepper or anything else wicked. Uh, when all was said and done, the Brown Hill Settlement was a rectangular area of uh, roughly nine square miles, settled by eight families, 43 children, 16 adults. Plans were underway for a schoolhouse to be built not far from the Gingrich barn soon enough. Uh, but it didn't seem like Ed was taken to his community life any better. Uh, than he had been in Canada. His his rowdy brothers also not helping matters. Shortly after arriving in Brown Hill, Ed's three older brothers, Atlee Joe, well, I guess two older brothers, and then his younger brother, Danny, uh, wrestled him down and tied him to a pole in the barn. Then they covered his mouth with duct tape. Jesus. So he couldn't yell for help. And then they left him out there all night. Ha <laughs> ha, what a, what a fun brother prank. That's just boys being boys. Permanently traumatizing one another. Uh, next morning, Ed's dad found him in the barn. Uh, excuse me. Then Ed got furious when his dad said that he would not untie Ed until he promised not to retaliate. Ed finally kept his word, but I'm guessing his brothers were a little nervous for the next few weeks, looking for signs of possible impending vengeance. Uh, by June of 1985, when Ed is now 19, the Brown Hill Settlement has a population of 93, 13 different families. It is a fucking city now, guys. Mr. Gingrich, with the help of his four oldest boys, built a sawmill in the center of the property. Sitting next to the shack that now houses a woodshed, or at that, that point housed a woodshed, the sawmill had a, a five-foot saw blade driven by a diesel-powered motor. Diesel's okay. Diesel's godly. Obviously, it's, it's, it's the fiendish gas. Uh, you got to keep your eye on that gas. Rough-cut lumber, the community hoped, would draw more Amish to the area, right? So they could uh, make some money to enjoy their lifestyle. Uh, when the mill was done in July, Mr. Gingrich hired Levi Shetler's oldest son, Elmer, who was an experienced sawmill operator to run the business. Now, Levi was Ed's future wife's father. Uh, as part of uh, the deal, Elmer right, got to live in the Gingrich's old house because they'd built a new one for themselves. Atlee, Ed's oldest brother, uh, would become Elmer's assistant. 
Ed was excited about this new mill. He had a natural interest in mechanics, would spend hours tinkering, tinkering around with the saw's motor. If something broke, he'd always figure out how to fix it. He liked impressing his fellow Amish with his technical skills. Yikes! Sounded a bit like pride there, Brother Ed. Sinful. Gross. Someone needs to knock this hot dog down a peg. Uh, that summer, Ed and his brother Joe began spending time with Richard Zimmer, the owner of a horse and cattle farming neighborhood, the Gingrich's, uh, the, sorry, the owner of a house and cattle farm uh, neighboring. That'd be kind of funny. Uh, a horse and cattle farm neighborhood. <laughs> I guess why not? There's Amish settlements. Uh, it was neighboring the Gingrich's land. Richard Zimmer, old, old Dick Zimmer, old Dickie Zim. Uh, Dick Zimmer sounds like a male grooming device. Trim all the hair, nick none of the skin with the Dick Zimmer 2.0. Zimmy Dick, Zimmy Balls. Say goodbye to your trimmer. Say hello to the Zimmer. Uh, anyway, Zimmer was happy to uh, have the boys work on his trucks, tractors, and farm machinery. As the summer wore on, Ed spent less and less time at home, more time at either the sawmill or at Zimmer's. Ed was proud of the fact that he had non-Amish friends and that even these friends considered him a mechanical wizard. And this shitty behavior did not go unnoticed by community elders. Ed is also now starting to avoid church, pretending to be sick so he can sneak over to the Zimmer's farm and work on Dick's farming equipment, maybe even watch Dick's TV. He was confiding in Dick. He didn't know why the Amish limited themselves by doing everything the hard way. He didn't understand what electricity had to do with morality or why they considered non-Amish people evil. He didn't see why Amish people couldn't own cars but could ride in them. If the point was avoiding them, how did that make sense? He didn't fucking get it. Not good. Asking lots of questions uh, tends to not be super compatible with uh, these brands of religion. Uh, Zimmer listened as Ed told him that he'd been thinking about leaving the community but didn't know how to go about it. One afternoon as Ed and Zim were drinking sodas in Dick's driveway, Ed asked the Dick uh, if he had a daughter he could marry. His plan was to leave the Amish, marry Dick's daughter, build a house on Dick's land, start a sawmill, just him and Dick and Dick's daughter. Right, friends till the end. Uh, Dick said he liked the idea, but one problem, don't have a daughter. God, I should have looked into that. Should have thought about that a little more. Damn it. Ed then asked Zimmer if he could have one of his sons instead. And Zimmer was like, what? And then Ed looked him square in the eye and just calmly said, why not? A butthole's still a hole. A warm body's a warm body. Am I right? Or am I right? Uh, Zimmer couldn't argue with that logic. And he's like, okay, fine. You can take Kenny. And of course that never happened. Uh, Soon after this, Ed finds another non-Amish confident. He's getting himself deeper in this hot water. He meets a 32-year-old private duty nurse named Debbie Williams who lived with her husband, Hank, about a mile south of Mill Village. Hank was a local carpenter who did business at the sawmill. Ed met Debbie one afternoon when she came for a truckload of free sawdust that she would use as bedding for her horses. They quickly became friends, started attending local horse auctions together. Yee! Young Amish man hanging with a hot older nurse. I don't know if she's hot or not, but I do know that the Amish elders did not like this one bit. Right? They start tugging on their beards more than usual when they talk about it. They scour the Bible passages uh, for hot passages, scour the Bible for passages about like hot nurses or I don't know, Jezebels, uh, so they can warn Ed to avoid letting her use her feminine ways to lure him to damnation. October of 1985, 19-year-old Ed meets 21-year-old Katie Shetler now. Uh, well, meets is a strong word for a community of around 100 people. Uh, I'm sure they saw each other. Let's say they were introduced uh, more formally to one another now. Katie was the younger sister of Elmer, right? The guy who's working at the mill. Uh, in October of 1985, Elmer and his wife, Salama, or I don't know, I've never seen this name before. Uh, Salami. <laughs> Elmer and Salami. Oh, oh boy. Uh, Salama had a baby girl named Drusilla. Elmer, Salami, Drusilla. Salami didn't have any family. 
<laughs> her name's not Salami, but she's not. She's a minor character in the story. So fucking, as far as the story's concerned, now she's Salami. Um, Salami uh, didn't have any family that could help her with Drusilla and her two-year-old son, Samuel. So Elmer asked his 21-year-old sister to drop by the house once they had help. Katie definitely knew how to help take care of kids. She'd helped raise eight of her 11 younger siblings. She was one of 15 kids in total. My God, was an expert at feeding, bathing, watching babies and toddlers. She uh, had even breastfed a lot of her uh, younger siblings, as uh, is the Amish way. Ed took notice of the petite young woman. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I just threw that in there last second. That'd be so fucked up. <laughs> if you had to breastfeed your younger siblings. I don't know why that just hits me so funny right now. But anyway, that didn't, she's not breastfeeding. Anyway. Ed took notice though of the petite young woman playing in the leaves with two-year-old Samuel. Katie, for her part, had known Ed's brothers, Danny, Atlee, and Joe, a little better. Uh, all three of them had girlfriends at another Amish community in Canada though. She's not going to go after them. She didn't know as much about Ed, only that he was a bit of a rebel. Keep your eye on that guy. He hangs out with non-Amish people. He likes mechanics. Mm, he's a bad boy. He's like a he's like the James Dean. He's a fucking rebel. On the um yeah, and, and uh, Ed is not on great terms with her uncle Rudy, who is the bishop. Uh, despite their differences, the young devoted Amish woman, the young Amish rebel, thinking of leaving the community forever, find themselves in similar circumstances. Right, pressure to get married. That November, Katie's twenty-five-year-old sister married a farmer from a nearby settlement, and Katie now was the oldest unmarried child in the family. Scandal. Her womb is being wasted. Clock's ticking, Katie. Right? If you're going to kick out another 15 kids, you better find a working young Amish dick quick. Her sister, Barbara, who was one year younger, had a steady boyfriend. And if Barbara got married before Katie, uh, that was considered a good indication that Katie was destined to be executed or to be an old maid forever. Ed, too, feeling right, community pressure has been for a while to settle down. His folks, the elders, they don't like how much he's strange in the community. And he did like spending time with Katie. And soon he quickly, uh, you know, becomes uh, basically her boyfriend. But he's not ready to get married. Katie's worst fears are realized in January of 1986 when she learns that Barbara and her boyfriend, oh boy, if they've gotten engaged, Katie is now almost officially an old maid. She is a year or two away, tops, from her puss turning into a neglected, forgotten sadness hole full of cobwebs and dust and broken dreams. Meanwhile, Atlee and Joe right? Uh, they married their Canadian girlfriends that fall, heading back to Ontario for cer- ceremonies. Then Joe and his wife, Annie, moved to a 120-acre farm along the east side of Frisbee Town, or sorry, Frisbee Town, Frisbee Town Road. It is Frisbee Town. Frisbee Town Road. That's a fun name for a road. In Mill Village. Then Elmer and his family moved to New York to run a sawmill there. Uh, seemed like everyone's getting married, moving up and out. Then to make matters worse for Ed, Mr. Gingrich gives the sawmill foreman job to his nephew, David Shetler. God damn. The bishop's oldest son, not to him. Now Ed's going to have to be more careful too about what he says around the mill. But he's uh, still not careful enough for the community's liking. Like an asshole, he keeps interacting with the growing number of non-Amish people in the area. Coming to the mill to buy custom-cut lumber. Sell to the customers, Ed. Do not talk to them about anything other than fresh wood. Tree wood, not man wood. That's one of the worst things you can talk to them about. Ed had been sharing Katie regularly, or sorry, been seen, been sharing her. Ed's been, <laughs> Ed's been sharing Katie regularly. He's been pimping her out to locals for quite some time. No, he's been seeing her uh, for a year now, but still hasn't propo- uh, proposed to her. He's still not sure he wants to marry her. He also knows that dumping her will put him uh, on the bishop's blacklist probably forever. Uh, he has to decide soon, which is worse, getting married or trying to make it alone in the outside world. Ed chooses option number one. Under pressure from both their families, Ed and Katie get married December 2nd, 1986. At his 20, Katie Yee. 
She, she is an ancient 22 years old. I can't believe she's still alive. Will her womb still even bear the blessed fruit or has it dried up and, and turned to dust? Uh, let's use this marriage as an opportunity to learn a little about Amish marriages in general. An Amish couple must take several steps before they may marry. Proper uh, certification of membership must be requested from the church. All couples that plan to marry uh, have their plans published, as they call it. And the deacon is responsible for announcing the names of the girls and the men they plan to marry. The fathers then announce the date and time of the wedding. Invite members to attend, right? Basically everyone in the community. The betrothed couple uh, does not attend the church service on the Sunday they are published. Instead, the young woman prepares a meal for her fiance. They enjoy dinner alone at her home. Oof, getting, getting frisky, frisky. Uh, when the girl's family returns from church, the daughter formally introduces her fiance to her parents. Unlike English engagements, non-Amish engagements, the future groom does not give her a diamond uh, because, you know, or any other kind of ring because jewelry, prideful and sinful. He may give her china plates or, I love this so much, a clock. Yes, a clock. <laughs> oh, Katie, what a lucky girl you are. Ed must have saved months for that clock and a cuckoo clock at that. How wonderful. You'll think of your husband's love and devotion every time you hear cuckoo, cuckoo. Uh, after being published, the young people uh, have just a few days before the ceremony. Uh, it all moves fast since they don't have a, a wedding that involves, you know, making plans in advance so friends and family can take time off work to attend. There's no wedding venue to rent, no photographer to hire, no catering, no tuxes to rent, uh, rent no uh, music, no DJ right, no uh, fun to be had, nothing. Uh, the girl to be married helps her mom prepare for the wedding and feast, which takes place in her parents' home. During this time, the future husband keeps busy extending personal invitations to member of his church district. Uh, it takes him a lot of buggy, lucky, a lot of buggy rides to get to everybody's houses. Uh, an Amish bride's wedding attire is always new. She usually makes her own dress and also those of her attendants, known as new hawkers. The Pennsylvania Dutch translation for side sitters. Look at my beautiful side sitters. Uh, Katie's dress, plain cut, mid calf length, unadorned. Right, uh, no fancy trim, lace or train. Uh, mid calf length, though. Oof. Hail Lucifina. Uh, unlike English brides who normally only wear their bridal dresses once, an Amish bride's wedding dress will become her Sunday church attire after she's married. She gets to keep showing off uh, those sexy-ass lower calves. Oh, man. Rock hard right now. Nice. Uh, also typically be buried in the same dress when she dies. Ooh, clearly uh, the Amish in general have better eating habits than I do. If I was going to be buried in my wedding suit, especially the one I wore at my first wedding, it would be... Uh, It'd be a tight fit. It, it, it would look like um, uh, what's left of the Hulk's clothes when he turns green. Uh, instead of a veil, Katie wore a black prayer covering to differentiate from her daily white cap by strict Amish tradition. No one in the bridal party carries flowers. Too great a risk. Might read as showy, prideful. Roses. Oh, that's a, that's a great way for the devil to sneak in. Uh, Ed and his new hawkers, you know, his side sitters, uh, they wore black suits. Uh, all coats and vests were fastened with hooks and eyes, but not buttons. <laughs> Easy. Fucking buttons. Are you kidding me? Uh, their shirts were white. Shoes and stockings were black. Ed also wore high-topped uh, black shoes and a black hat with a three and a half inch brim as per community regulations. Uh, no best man or maid of honor because best and honor gross. Mm -mm. All new hawkers. Equal importance. Uh, the three hour long service. Three hours. Oh my God. Uh, began with the congregation singing hymns without instrumental accompaniment. accompaniment. So it probably sounded uh, terrible. Uh, while the minister counseled Ed and Katie privately. After Bishop Rudy and the young couple returned to the room, uh, prayer, scripture reading, and long sermon began. Man, what a fun wedding. 
Uh, following the sermon, the bishop asks Katie and Ed to step forward from their seat with the rest of the congregation. And he questions them about their marriage to be. Uh, so, you know, they have like, they read basically vows similar to how a non-Amish wedding would have vows. Uh, the bishop then blesses the couple. The fathers of the couple give testimony about marriage to the congregation, final prayer, a lot of prayers. Uh, excuse me, ceremony uh, draws to a close. Levi and Emma Shetler, Katie's parents, then hosted a day-long wedding celebration. And I use the term celebration very lightly, uh, attended by friends and relatives from Canada, Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and New York. The women served dinner while the men set up tables around a, on a U-shape, uh, you know, a corner of the table is reserved for Ked or Ked corner of the table, uh, reserved for Ed, uh, Katie and the bridal party. This is an honored place called the Eck, meaning corner. Uh, tables are laden with the roast, roast chicken with bread stuffing, mashed potatoes, gravy, cream, celery, coleslaw, applesauce, cherry pie, donuts, fruit salad, tapioca pudding, uh, bread, butter, and jelly. Okay. Okay. This, I gotta, you know, uh, give credit where credit's due. This part sounds awesome. I am into the food part. Sounds like a better meal than I've eaten at most weddings. Katie sat on Ed's left in the corner, mirroring the same way they will always sit as man and wife in the buggy. Single women sit on the same side as Katie. Single men on the same side as Ed have to follow the rules. Everything must be tightly controlled. Uh, the immediate family members sit at a long table in the kitchen, both fathers at the heads, following dinner, right? The afternoon uh, spent visiting and playing games. I didn't say what games uh, they were playing. I can only imagine how exciting the games were. The newlyweds' first night together are always spent at the bride's home because uh, they must get up early the next morning to help clean the house. Don't go thinking you're special because he's got married. In Ed and Katie's uh, case, they would have to live in her parents' basement until spring when a home would be you know, constructed for them. Their honeymoon was spent visiting all their new relatives on the weekends throughout the winter. That sound like, doesn't sound like a honeymoon. Uh, now that Ed was married, Mr. Gingrich offered to pay him $3 an hour as an employee of the sauna who's working for free before. Don't spend it all in one place, Ed. Careful with your $3 an hour. Ed and Katie didn't need to worry about room and board. Right? They're going to live in the basement apartment of Katie's parents' house. Uh, March of 1987, when business at the sawmill picks up, Atlee and Danny Gingrich chip in to construct a one-story chipboard house for Ed and Katie to live in on their own. And in the spring of 87, very quickly... Uh, Katie gets pregnant. Ed doesn't jump for joy, uh, but doesn't seem sad either. He just says that he hopes the baby is a boy. Fun. Uh, September 20th, 1987, Ed's elderly wife, Katie, she's 23 now. God. And it doesn't say that she was using a walker, but she had to have been close. She's practically ready for the nursing home. She gives birth. Uh, her ancient womb kicks out uh, her and Ed's first child, a son named Daniel, named after his, of course, paternal grandfather and paternal grandmother. Grandparents, Danny and Danny have a grandson named Danny. And a son named Danny. Uh, this is so stupid and funny to me to imagine so many Dannys in one family. They do have a lot. I mean, Ed does have a son named Daniel, father named Daniel, and a brother named Daniel. Uh, after Katie spends a night in a birthing clinic, friend comes back to drive her, Ed, and Daniel home. For the next couple of weeks, Katie's younger sisters, Clara, Lavina, come by and help her take care of her new baby. And she needs help. All is not well in the Gingrich home now. Ed is feeling off. Possibly the schizophrenia just starting to show up a bit. Uh, remember, highly stressful situations can trigger it. Or just, uh, you know, having a very normal internal struggle that someone would have when they don't want to be Amish. Uh, and now they have uh, an Amish child. Uh, now they're connected further to a community that they've always really kind of wanted to leave. The pressure from Katie for him to be a good Amish man and father weighing on him heavily. He's feeling increasing like he wants to be in the modern world. And uh, now a wife and son are holding him back. He hates spending time in the tiny house with Katie and the baby. We'll find any excuse uh, not to hang around either one of them. 
also doesn't uh, tell her when he's coming home late now. Uh, when he does finally show up late, she has no idea where he goes. He'll demand a hot meal, right? Since his has long grown cold. Uh, this situation so terrible for both Ed and Katie, right? Familial, uh, familial or community pressure to get married. So fucking stupid, right? At this point, the planet does not need the human race to keep breeding at the rate we've been breeding so far. We can slow down. We can slow way down. I personally don't give a shit if uh, either one of my kids ever gets married or not. I don't care if they have kids. I'll, I'll love them the same either way. Uh, right? They're never going to feel that kind of pressure from me. I want them to be happy, feel, feel fulfilled, pay their own way in the world. Unless, of course, something happens physically or psychologically uh, that prevents them from doing so. Then dad and Lindsay will happily step in, as I'm sure their mom and stepdad will. And that's it. Right, be happy, work hard, as long as you're able. Uh, don't make life needlessly harder for those around you. Enjoy your ride in our amusement park of a world. Don't make the ride harder for others. Help them if and when you can, and that's pretty much it. No need to overcomplicate it all. Add a bunch of completely arbitrary, uh, stressful uh, rules and pressure. Overall, aren't we just such an irrational species? Ed might be the quote-unquote crazy subject of today's episode, but also the situation he was pressured into crazy. Humanity, overall, pretty fucking crazy. Uh, When Katie refused to warm up his food at night, Ed complains bitterly to his friends that his wife is lazy. He also tells Katie, when she complains about him not coming home enough, that it's none of her business where he goes, right? When he comes home, she has no right to ask. This marriage doomed from the start. Even at the sawmill, he starts coming and going as he pleases now as well. When he's there, he mostly hangs around uh, non-Amish friends, you know, customers coming there. Then even though the sawmill still needs him, he he decides to open up his own uh, machine shop, which gives him the ability to spend long stretches of time with non-Amish friends, Right, uh, driving around in the area, searching for motors, mechanical parts. Around this time, Ed and his wife and his son, who they move out of their tiny house into a little bit, you know, larger gray house across uh, from the barn that you know his brothers helped build. Bigger and better place does not make them any happier. By the summer of '88, Ed and Katie have been married for less than two years. Uh, they are now barely speaking. Now Katie's starting to wonder if her husband isn't just a shithead, but also sick somehow. Toward the end of July, Ed seems to be losing his appetite. He loses weight, and he starts complaining about being dizzy a lot of the time. Uh, Starts spending his afternoons taking long naps, which he had never done before. An increasing lack of motivation also can be an early symptom of uh, schizophrenia, you know, and just uh, fatigue. Uh, Katie wants to talk to Mr. Gingrich about it, but Ed forbids her. And many in the community, even though they can see that Ed's not doing well, he's sunken eyes, waxy skin, uh, they think he's simply faking being sick, like he had faked, uh, you know, being sick for so many years to get out of church. So now Katie tries to get Ed to see a doctor, kind of. Uh, An Amish-approved doctor, so not really a doctor. This is ridiculous, but also maybe one of my favorite parts of the tale. It's, it's, I, I, you know, I don't want this to have happened because of what happens at the end tragedy-wise, but this is just so weird and interesting. August of 1988, the advice of her parents, Katie gets Ed to see a doctor, I use the term doctor so loosely, named Merritt W. Terrell, a chiropractor who practiced out of a tiny one-story house off Route 19, 50 miles south of the Amish settlement. Long-ass buggy ride to get there. Must have, must have gotten some uh, non-Amish friends to drive them down there in one of the one of the devil's hot rods. Uh, Dr. Terrell had a sign outside his door that said drug less therapy, which was exactly what he practiced. Uh, standing five foot five in cowboy boots, uh, the eccentric 65-year-old lunatic tried to cure his patients in a very interesting way, a way that the Amish liked because it did not involve uh, invasive uh, machinery-heavy procedures of modern medicine, uh, also a way that did not fucking work at all ever. Ed and Katie entered Dr. Terrell's office uh, through what ha- at one time had been the front door of a residence. The former living room had been converted into a waiting room and a receptionist behind a tiny desk 
uh, sits in what used to be the hallway. Uh, you know, greets him as they enter. This all sounds very promising so far. After a brief wait, Ed is directed down a hallway to an examination room. The only piece of furniture in the room, large leather lounge chair, where Ed is instructed to sit. Ed sits down in the chair. Uh, Dr. Terrell appears from behind a curtain <laughs> and feeds a, uh, a slip of paper that Ed had previously written on, right? So he did have to do one thing before he said, he has to write on this piece of paper. And then this doctor feeds this piece of paper into a, a, a little instrument uh, the size of a fax machine, little piece of like homemade machinery. This mystery machine was somehow, according to this quote-unquote doctor, supposed to determine Ed's illness by scanning his handwriting. How do people come up with this shit? Sounds like Doc Terrell also suffering from schizophrenia, right? Untreated. This guy's a fucking quack. After this paper is fed through his stupid snake oil machine, <laughs> I just picture it doing nothing. I just picture like he, he puts this piece of paper into this like fake machine that uh, maybe the one mechanical thing he does is just pulls a piece of paper like through what looks like a scanner. And then he behind the curtain just goes, Beep boop, beep boop, beep boop, beep boop, beep beep boop. Just makes like little kind of like weird robot noises. And then he's like, mm, let me look at the results. And it's just nothing. It's like the paper's exactly the same on the other side. So he, he, he says that a series of numbers and codes are displayed. And then Doc Terrell interprets these numbers and codes for diagnosis and treatment. Just good God. <laughs> beep boop, beep boop. Uh, looks like you need your toes pulled. Uh, in Ed's case, the machine reveals that all he needs is a toe pulling and foot rub and bottle of blackstrap molasses. What is happening right now? How did this dipshit get a business license? <laughs> well, all righty, Eddie. The results of my penmanship, Diagnostictron 5000 are in. Beep boop, beep boop, beep boop, beep boop. Good news. All you're suffering from is stiff toes and tight feet. That's why you're tired. Who, who can sleep with stiff toes, you big ding dong? So we're going to knock all this out today. Little topol, little heel rub, guzzle some blackstrap molasses at home tonight. Bada boom, bada bing. You're right as rain. Healthy and happy. Uh, following this just fucking mind-numbingly idiotic treatment, Ed walks back into the reception area where he pays $25 for the visit. Uh, he's given a jar of blackstrap molasses for purifying his blood, and he's sent on his way, cured. Uh, blackstrap molasses, by the way, is a byproduct of sugar production. Sugar production starts with boiling sugarcane juice to crystallize the sugar, which is then filtered to separate it from the juice. And this leaves a thick brown liquid called molasses. And it can be boiled two more times to create what's called blackstrap molasses, thicker and darker than regular molasses. Uh, has a real bitter taste. Uh, because it's boiled three times, uh, it is more nutrient dense than other types of molasses. And still today, it's a popular remedy for uh, like anemia, arthritis, stress, PMS symptoms, blood sugar spikes, more. Are any of these claims backed up by science? Actually, yes. Uh, it is a great supplement, right? Ounce per ounce, blackstrap molasses contains more iron than eggs, more calcium than milk, more potassium than any other food. Provides 18 amino acids, right? It has so much iron, it can help with anemia, PMS, uh, even help with women having trouble with hair loss in some cases. Can also help with constipation. What it definitely cannot help with is schizophrenia. Uh, Ed goes for follow-up visits. In August, September, December of 1988, despite having much looser toes and softer feet and probably higher blood sugar, uh, he just seems to be uh, getting worse and worse. What, what the frick? Uh, by Thanksgiving of 1988, Katie's at her wit's end. She's pregnant again. Ed is moodier than ever. He's still sleeping too much. Still has no interest in being either her husband or a father. Uh, March 21st, 1989, just four days after her 25th birthday, Katie gives birth to their second child, a boy, 
also named Danny. Another Danny. No, his name is Enos. And uh, Ed could care less. He's spending most of his time away from home. Later that year, December 3rd, 1989, sawmill uh, that Ed has been working at burns down. Ed, bummed out now, uh, not having a sawmill that cuts down on his opportunities to interact with non-Amish people. He gets permission to rebuild it. Something he enjoys to do. Um, luckily, he does have his, you know, a machine shop. In the months leading up to the actual construction of the mill, uh, Ed is, uh, you know, traveling to Western Pennsylvania in search of sawmill parts, equipment ideas, information. Also, still has his machine shop. He actually ends up uh, have, getting to interact more with the outside world uh, than ever before, which makes him happy. Uh, when he's doing this, interestingly, he's no longer tired and dizzy. Uh, he's free of some skin problems he was also having. Uh, he's burst with energy. Makes me wonder if he had just left the Amish and started a new life when he was 18 or so, if he would have been so much less stressed, I think definitely, so much happier, I also think definitely, uh, would the onset of his schizophrenia ever even been triggered? No guarantee it would. It's a pretty mysterious condition. Uh, more family stress lingering for Ed in the background at this time. Katie quickly becomes pregnant with their third child. So they are, they're not talking much, but they are having sex. Uh, due sometime toward the end of March, 1990. Constructing the new sawmill means that uh, Katie and her soon-to-be three children will have to wait until March for their new house to be uh, built while Ed travels around working on his, uh, you know, passion project. March 13th, 1990, four days before her 26th birthday, Katie gives birth to the couple's third and last child, a girl also named Danny. Danny, Danny, and Danny, named after Ed's mom. No, uh, the girl's named Mary, after Ed's mom, Mary. Seems a little prideful, but you know, whatever, try not to judge. April uh, that year, Ed starts building the sawmill with all the supplies he's collected. Mill opens in May. Once the mechanical parts are all set up, Ed not really interested in sticking around working there anymore. He had his fun and now he's going to spend more time in the machine shop. The community gives him a pass on this because he is the only one kind of living there that knows how to fix his shit. Uh, the combination of Ed's, you know, well-designed equipment and the hard work of other employees do produce a good deal of business that summer at the mill. Ed's feeling so good. Uh, he doesn't go down to uh, Cambridge Springs to see Dr. Terrell for six months. His toes are looser than ever. His feet not too tight. His blood purified with all that black strap molasses. If anything, Ed is feeling too good. Now he wants to buy a truck and a phone like an asshole. He's sick of constantly relying on nearby non-Amish neighbors for rights. He's also, uh, you know, seen other Amish men use forklifts, backhoes, bulldozers to clear lots for building their homes. He understands why, why he can't have a truck, right? If he only uses it for, uh, you know, utility, it's going to be good for the community. Sad, right? Said that the devil clearly has its, his claws in him. Uh, his wife, Katie, and his dad shut down his requests. Both are afraid that with wild ideas like these uh, floating around, won't be long before Bishop Shetler shuts down the mill entirely for the safety of the community. Later that summer, August of 1990, Ed now meets non-Amish man Dave Lindsay at the sawmill. And Bishop Shetler will now regret not doing the right thing earlier, shutting the mill down when he had the chance. The devil has now entered the settlement. David come to the sawmill with a truckload of logs to sell one day. Ed offered to give him a guided tour, explaining in detail everything worked. Dave, clearly impressed. Uh, the two young men become fast friends. Both want to become business owners and gain some measure of independence in the world. But Dave is not Amish. He's a devout evangelical Christian, member of the Bible Believers Baptist Church in Cory, Pennsylvania, about 20 miles away. And he is also crazy. He's, he's convinced that he has been called upon by God directly to rescue Amish men women and children, from what he calls the bishop's cult. Great. When one crazy set of religious beliefs slams into another and a schizophrenic is squished in the middle. It'll be caught in the middle of a theological battle that will not soothe his troubled mind. It will agitate it greatly. They believe that Amish people were no better in God's eyes than, uh, you know, random heathens in the far-flung regions of the world, doomed 
to eternal damnation unless someone brought Jesus, real Jesus, not Amish Jesus, into their lives and showed them the path of salvation. To him, it was tragic that the Amish were following their religious leaders down a road to literal hell. Oh boy, story that has been repeated over and over for thousands of years, leading to so much needless tragedy. My sky daddy is the real one. I'm going to devote my life to pushing the belief in him on everyone around me. Everyone else is wrong. Uh, Dave essentially sees himself as a behind the lines operative in a holy war. He is one of God's chosen warriors. How many people base a lot of their identity on that kind of belief, right? Life isn't working out uh, too well for me overall. My ego isn't getting stroked enough for my liking in the secular world. So how would I become one of God's chosen warriors? I'm one of the stars of a cool action movie now. Frick yeah, right? Ha ha, hell yeah. Oh no, I didn't hit the button the way I wanted to. I wanted to hit that button so hard, but I was afraid I was too enthusiastic. <laughs> I'd knock over my, my, my button holder. Anyway, maybe that was funnier. A few days after their first meeting, uh, Dave pulls into the Gingrich Mill. This time he's brought his Bible. And he asks Ed if he can tell him about Jesus. And Ed, even though he's heard a lot about Jesus growing up Amish, he's like, yeah, sure. Uh, Dave zeroes in on many of the things Ed has already been questioning. That Amish bishops don't actually have all the answers, right? That they keep their followers in the dark from God's love and wisdom. Ed thinks about how his desires have constantly been thwarted by the bishop. Ed also likes Dave's vision of guaranteed salvation. He finds it refreshing to hear about how Jesus loves him and will save him the minute he accepts Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Not, uh, he does, you know, as opposed to hearing that God is going to punish him if he doesn't do his chores. Uh, he likes Dave's vision of, of a loving God a lot more than the angry God that he's come to know. A week later, Dave comes back again. Uh, they pick up their conversation where they'd left it off. By that fall, you know, they're meeting once a week in Ed's machine shop. Sometimes Dave also brings along uh, Lazar Lamajic, a 65-year-old Serbian immigrant, also a born-again Christian, who is also there to help convince Ed to convert. A lot of pressure he's getting now. Uh, by October, the idea that the Amish don't have all the answers is firmly stuck in Ed's mind. And now he starts to think again uh, about leaving. Now he believes God will not punish him for doing so. But what about his wife and now three children? Well, Katie, uh, less happy with him than ever. She's not looking forward uh, to, uh, you know, another winter spent in a tiny house with three kids. Uh, Mary, seven months old. Uh, Enos, not yet two. Danny's three. Uh, if Ed had kept his promise to build him a better house, she and the kids would be there now, but he doesn't seem to care. Uh, most evenings, he's still coming home late for dinner and expecting Katie, exhausted from a long day of looking after two toddlers and a baby to put another meal on the table. And his health has taken another dip. Uh, and she has, you know, no interest in leaving the Amish community. Uh, the stress of wanting to leave is weighing on Ed heavily. He's always complaining about an earache now. Seems to be itchy all the time. At night, agitated by not being able to turn his thoughts off, not feeling well physically, he's having a hard time sleeping. His toes, probably stiff as fuck. Uh, probably not drinking nearly enough blackstrap molasses. I bet if he was vis visiting, uh, you know, that esteemed doctor, Terrell, he'd be fine. Uh, by January of 1991, Ed is splitting his time between the machine shop and the sawmill with Dave, Lindsay, and Lajar Lamajic making regular visits. Ed is busy converting two large motors from electric to diesel and kerosene power, uh, a project that required a lot of skill, inventiveness. Uh, it was way more interesting to him than uh, building a house for his family. In February, he spends several thousand dollars on a surface grinder, a one-ton Bridgeport drill press, a heavy grinder. Now has the equipment to grind, cut, uh, drip virtually anything, which means he can manufacture any part he needs for the sawmill, the machine shop, or a customer. Overcoming the technological limitations of the Amish, you know, it made Ed a determined and innovative mechanic. And he was proud of the fact that right under the bishop's nose, he had built a state-of-the-art machine shop that didn't technically go against any Amish rules. Meanwhile, things at home getting worse and worse. March of 1991, 
uh, Katie asked Ed to plow up a patch of ground behind the house to expand a vegetable garden. Finally, after a lot of nagging, Ed finds a free time to do it. But when Katie sees Ed starting to uh, starting up the horse and plow, she runs over to stop him. He had just plowed through a row of her peas. And when she told him that he did that, he starts to laugh at her as though her distress, you know, was just funny to him. Filled with rage, Katie now walks up to uh, Ed, hits him across the chest with the handle of her hoe. Not good, right? They're crossing uh, some lines here. Ed then yanks the tool out of her hand, throws it on the ground, backhands her across the face, which knocks her to the ground, then makes no effort to help her up as she scrambles up. So really dangerous line, been crossed with these two, right? Physical violence towards each other. Ed now uh, also starts hanging around with his old pal, Debbie Williams, again, right? Going to her uh, horse auctions, often not returning before midnight. Huh. What else were they doing? Nothing's ever been confirmed. Were they having an affair? I have to think there's a good chance they were. Uh, on the nights he comes home late, comes home late. Ed and Katie, you know, often fight all night or late into the night, waking up the kids. Uh, they're not having sex anymore because Ed says the last thing he wants is another child. Or was it because he was fucking Debbie now? Uh, Katie is miserable. She'd been raised to believe that a family with children in the, in the double digits, the best thing you can do with your life. Of course, she's been raised to think this. Members having lots of kids is the only way the Amish community is able to keep growing. Uh, on August 18th, 1991, Katie decides to make another effort at being a good wife. Throws a party for Ed's 26th birthday. It's a Sunday. When Katie, Ed, and the kids get home from church, uh, friends and family gather to watch Ed get his present. A bone-handled honey knife from a hardware store in Waterford. Katie made uh, Ed a chocolate birthday cake with candles. Everybody sings happy birthday as Katie kisses Ed on the cheek. Uh, she thinks that there's a chance that maybe things could improve between them. And things did get better for a little bit. September of 1991, Ed begins laying the foundation for he and Katie's new house. He's finally building it. The building of the new house moves along, even though Ed recruits other Amish men to help with the house uh, more than he actually works on it himself. Uh, something uh, unheard of in the Amish community, something very frowned upon. Ed thinks he's above it or his mental illness is progressing. Uh, Ed didn't even want to uh, help with the painting, saying the fumes would give him a headache. So Katie is uh, left to paint uh, most of the house herself. One afternoon, a community member is shocked and disturbed to see Ed pick up Katie out of a chair by her hair, yank her to her feet, right? Tell her to get back to painting. Jesus. Uh, without a word, he releases her after that, uh, walks into the kitchen to pump himself a glass of water. Now, what is Ed doing to her when people are not watching? November, the unhappy couple moves into their new house. And then Katie will on Christmas 1991 tell her sister-in-law, Annie Gingrich, Joe's wife, that Ed has been beating her. Uh, breaking her promise to Katie not to tell anyone, Anna, Annie uh, tells her husband, Joe, and then Joe tells he and Ed's dad. But he does nothing to intervene, the Amish way. Meanwhile, at a celebration at the Shetler house, Katie's parents, Emma and Levi, can tell something's wrong between Ed and their daughter but they don't want to come between a man and his wife. That was considered inappropriate. Instead, Katie's mom offers her daughter some of uh, her quote-unquote nerve pills, which was Xanax. Emma tells her that without those pills, uh, she wasn't sure she could have managed all the demands of family and community life. She tells her to take the pills and give herself a break. Hmm, uh, questionable. Uh, pretty sure uh, pills do not keep your husband from beating you. Not sure how that was really supposed to help. Uh, Katie, a true believer in Dr. Terrell and his brand of drugless therapy, declines. She says uh, she would try and drink some blackstrap molasses to deal with it all. Seriously. Holy shit. Uh, I am positive that blackstrap molasses does not alleviate symptoms of domestic violence. Uh, by February of 1992, things are looking increasingly bleak now for Ed and Katie. Ed is despondent, depressed, hates his home life, barely spends an hour a day at home when he's not sleeping, sticking in the machine shop most of the time. Katie keeps asking him, you know, what, what's, what's wrong? What, what is she doing wrong? He refuses to talk about what's bothering him. 
Uh, with winter in full swing during a cold snap, the kids' beds are moved into Ed and Katie's room, the only bedroom with a heating stove. And sometimes they will now wake up to hear their parents, you know, screaming at each other, sometimes worse. One night, the shouting wakes up little barely three-year-old Enos, who sees his dad slap his mom in the face. Uh, his mom then punches his dad in the face. Uh, then Enos watches his dad throw his mom to the floor. In the morning, the uh, kids find her sleeping on a cot in a freezing living room. So what a shit show. Ed not doing well at all. This isn't just about him being an abusive, unhappy asshole. Dude is mentally ill. Now his paranoid schizophrenia really starts to manifest itself. Skin never feels right. Itchy all the time. He loses his appetite. His hair is always tingling. Sometimes he says his brain uh, feels like it's on fire, going to explode out of his head. He sometimes randomly feels as if uh, he's seen a blinding light being pointed at his eyes. He says that the chemical solvents he'd been used in the machine shop are making him feel dizzier than ever. His evangelical uh, friend Dave Lindsay still incessantly preaching at him. And now, Ed is beginning to see visions. One night, he jumps out of bed, starts walking around the room, talking to himself in a strange, high-pitched voice. Sleepy and disoriented, uh, Katie asks him what's going on. Ed declares that he has just received an important vision from God. He is now convinced that the bishop and Katie are against him. They're in league with the devil. They will stop at nothing to assure his soul's damnation. He starts ranting about killing the bishop, Katie's uncle, and freeing himself. And had Katie been raised in the outside world, I would like to think that at this point, she would be scared enough to contact local authorities who could com, uh, come over and conduct a mental health evaluation, maybe put Ed in a, in a psychiatric ward on an involuntary 72-hour hold. But because she is Amish, nothing happens. Ed doesn't express his vision to anyone else, just Katie, and she doesn't tell anyone else initially. Uh, to the Amish community, Ed just now has uh, some kind of strange sickness that makes him jittery and strange. Uh, Usually, whenever someone in an Amish settlement, uh, quote, takes sick, the extended community offers their support. uh, Vigils at the bedside are commonplace. Household and farm chores are uh, taken care of. If necessary, money is sent for family expenses once word gets out, uh, often through, you know, um, uh, either just uh, word of mouth or sometimes the Amish national newspaper called The Budget. Uh, But the nature of Ed's illness, uh, puzzling to his community. As one neighbor said, we knew something just wasn't right with Ed, but we couldn't put our hand on it. Of course he couldn't, right? They are preposterously uneducated. None of them have more than an eighth grade education. Not even a good one. An Amish eighth grade education. Uh, They don't know fuck all about mental illness. How could they? The Amish around Ed couldn't tell if he was losing his faith, if he was sick, or if it was something else. One night in late March of 1992, a Sunday, the Shetler family gathers at Levi's house to try in their way to help Ed. Everyone's present, including Bishop Rudy Shetler. That night, Ed and everyone's presence horrifies Katie by telling Levi that an unnamed friend and spiritual advisor had opened his eyes to the true nature of God and Jesus Christ. The only way he would be saved, Ed said, was if he left the community. They ask him if he's uh, thinking about leaving. Ed insists that he has had a vision from God and he needs to. This kicks off a screaming match, uh, ends with everybody storming out. The Amish, not skilled in conflict resolution. After this botched intervention of sorts, shit really hits the fan. March 23rd, 1992, a Monday. That morning, Katie can't get Ed out of bed no matter how hard she tries. He's laying on his back in a, in a fugue state of sorts. Every so often, he'll spit up at the ceiling. He's been doing this for an hour, saying that the patterns the spit is making on the ceiling is some kind of message, right? This is active phase psychosis. He's having a full-on psychotic break right now. Katie's scared. How could she not be? She sends the children to, her, uh, to his parents' house, gets Bishop Rudy to come over, accompanied by Ed's brothers, Dan, Atley, and Joe, Perfect. Uh, four guys who collectively know less about mental illness than the average non-Amish junior high kid. Uh, all these men, as they're staring at him, 
Ed suddenly announces that his heart is literally tearing loose from his body and he rolls off the bed. Everyone stares in horror as Ed flops around on the floor. Normal people would, I'd like to think, call 911 at this point. But these weirdos don't have phones or basic human logic abilities. This is also wildly unnecessary. Instead of calling 911, the Gingrich brothers hold Ed down, afraid that he might hurt himself. Uh, someone floats uh, uh, going to a doctor or something maybe they should do, but Bishop Rudy's like, get out of here. That's a dumb idea. Not on my wise watch. He insists that Ed is just clearly been taken over by Satan. And they just, all they need to do is pray for him. And this wouldn't even bother me if they also took him to a psychiatric center, right? Cover all your bases. Pray all you want, right? Fine. But don't immediately jump to only, right, the demon base. Even Catholic exorcists insist that someone seemingly afflicted with some sort of paranormal, uh, you know, demonic torment first have a psychiatric evaluation. So these guys start praying, asking God to cast the demons out of Ed. As their chorus of voices uh, rises, praying Satan away, Ed sits up, Bishop Rudy helps him to his feet, walks into a cot where Katie covers his feet, legs, and torso with the quilt. He looks like himself again for the most part, but he is not. He is just keeping quiet for the moment about the uh, hornets buzzing around inside his mind. By noon, Ed's acting strange again. After taking a nap, he wakes up with a start, starts crawling around in all fours like he's an animal. Nothing to see here, just a 25-year-old father of three who's gone feral. Guys come back over. They start praying again. Uh, the sounds of the prayer are drowned out by Ed's brain barking and howling. All right, he stops every so often to a spit, uh, to rear back his head and scream or howl. Uh, then he crawls under a cot, won't come back out. When Bishop Rudy finally bends down to look, uh, he's sound asleep down there. Emma Shetler now tries to convince Ed's brothers that Ed needs a doctor, a real one, someone who can prescribe him uh, some medicine that might help him. Luckily, Amish men do not have to listen to Amish women and often don't. So they shoot down her stupid lady idea. And they wisely, when he's feeling better, agree to take him back to Dr. Titos, Dr. Blackstrap Molasses. Fuck yeah, bro. As the day progresses, Ed vacillates back and forth between sleeping and complaining about body parts, uh, maybe falling off, detaching, uh, rolling around inside of him, you know, being a dog. When the women get him to the table to eat something, finally, he leaps up, says that his heart has now jumped from one side of his chest to the other. He's clearly not doing well mentally. Then he goes to lie down again, but just as suddenly uh, gets back up, uh, scrambles on his hands and knees, right, to hide, into a hide under a desk now. Emma finally intervenes uh, more forcefully, tells Ed to take some of her Xanax. To her surprise, instead of taking two, he takes 15 of them. <laughs> just knocks him out cold. And no one worries about him overdosing uh, uh, and goes to get a doctor because these people are idiots. And I know that's mean, but also this is what fucking happens when you consistently turn your back on formal education. You get stupid. The next day, March 24th, Ed wakes up complaining of a vision he's had of Danny, Atley, and Joe flying around in the sky with a bunch of angels. Then he starts spitting up again, right? He's spitting again, uh, you know, finding another vision to interpret or message. His wife, Katie, father, Danny, finally decide enough's enough, right? They, they uh, go to a neighbor's house, have the neighbor call an ambulance. First good decision anyone has made in this story. Uh, when the Gingriches inform Ed that he's going to the hospital now, he takes off for the door, tries to escape. His brothers, Atley and Joe, have to wrestle him to the floor. Soon, the orange and white Mill Village Volunteer Fire Department ambulance is in front of the house. EMT Doug Peters climbs out of the emergency vehicle as Assistant Fire Chief Andy McLaughlin pulls up in his black Chevy Blazer. They approach the house carrying a medical kit, bodyboard, and an ambulance cot equipped with drop legs and wheels. Inside, the men are still struggling to keep Ed pinned down. To everyone's surprise, Katie throws a right-hand punch at her husband in the middle of all this, hits him in the face, knocks him onto his back uh, when he had tried to get up at one point. Pretty sad these two are getting so good at hitting each other. Uh, if the volunteers are surprised to see an Amish wife punch out her husband, 
and they had to have been. They don't say anything. Presently, they're a little focused on the uh, guy now running around on his hands and knees, barking like a dog. Ed kicks, thrashes, squirms as his brothers try to carry him to the ambulance. Takes four Amish men plus three volunteers to subdue him. Bring him to Hammett Medical Center in Erie, now known as UPMC Hammett, a 446-bed hospital and medical facility. In the ambulance on Route 19, Ed tells anyone who will listen that his heart has torn loose and that he's drowning in his own blood. Then when they get him to the hospital and the doctor asks Ed if he can walk on his own, he calms way down and just replies normally, sure. It's now 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. Katie and Mr. Gingrich fill out, fill out uh, admittance forms, uh, writing down trouble with nerves as Ed's reason for being admitted. Mm, something like that. Yeah, sure. Uh, then incredibly, when Ed speaks to a psychiatrist, he seems totally fine. Katie's shocked. Reminds her of how Ed always seemed dejected and sat around the house, but would snap back to his old self when he was talking to his non-Amish friends in the sawmill. Uh, doctor asked Katie if it's uh, possible that Ed was just uh, joking around with everything he was doing. She doesn't think so, but Ed seems fine. So they have to release him. But then when he starts to walk away, he immediately turns on Katie, says that he knows she's trying to get rid of him so that she can marry his brother, Danny, whom he knows she has been having an affair with. Katie's shocked. She's never heard these accusations before. Psychotic again. Uh, Now Ed ends up getting admitted to the hospital psychiatric ward. While this wasn't incredibly shocking to the community, other old order Amish have had members of their community treated for mental health problems in the past. The way it happened blew everyone away. Ed had gone berserk in the presence of his family. He was strapped uh, to a cot against his will, carried off to the land of the non-Amish. They wondered why had he gone berserk? Was it because he was associating with non-Amish friends, particularly Dave Lindsay? Did that open up the door to the devil? That's what Bishop Rudy thought in his wisdom. He thought that once Ed got back, he needed to separate himself from the evangelists, evangelicals, and commit fully to Amish life, associating only with the Amish, then he'd be okay. Bishop Rudy thought that there was nothing wrong with him, that God, family, and lots of physical labor couldn't cure. Amen. Uh, Levi and Emma Shetler believed that Ed had simply cracked under the strain of being Amish, a way of life he'd hated for years. But that meant there wasn't a cure except for Ed to leave the community, his wife and his children, something Levi and Emma could not advocate for publicly unless they wanted to risk being shunned. Following day, March 25th, Ed is moved to a private room where visitors can see him as uh, soon as the antipsychotic antidepressant, and the side effect inhibitors, drug cocktail he is uh, now on, shows proof of working. Uh, To the doctors, all the signs point strongly to paranoid schizophrenia. That afternoon, Katie, Emma, Mr. Gingrich, visit Ed, are told he is a paranoid schizophrenic. And they're like, we know, we know, Bishop Rudy's got this. He's going to pray it away. Don't even worry about it. I don't know what they say. I doubt they really understood what they were being told. Uh, Ed greets his family members with a wide, sleepy smile. Katie hopes that things will finally now work out between them. They need to get back to fucking. She wants at least seven more kids. Come on. Stop stop barking like a dog long enough to put another kid in my belly. Ed says he doesn't remember anything about the last few days. The last thing he can recall was feeling weird in the machine shop. After the family leaves, Ed has another visitor, Dave Lindsay. Great. The devil magnet. Dave and Ed speak for a while, but Dave's suggesting that Ed has just had a bad reaction to some of the chemical fumes in the machine shop. But Ed doesn't want to talk about that. He wants to talk about a specific passage in the Bible that promises guaranteed salvation. Friday, April 3rd, 1992. Ed is discharged from the hospital. He is not cured. Schizophrenia doesn't work that way, but he's uh, not psychotic at the moment. Uh, He is complaining to his doctors that the drugs they prescribed him made him feel uh, tired and stupid. Uh, He has weekly appointments set up with a psychiatrist in Erie to whom Ed will again complain about the side effects of his medications when he goes once or twice. Uh, The psychiatrist explains to him that's going to take a month, maybe longer to figure out the right drug combination and dosage level. Ed has no interest in figuring this shit out. 
Uh, he doesn't have a lot of faith, right, in Western medicine. He doesn't like how he can't work for more than an hour without needing to go home and take a nap. Uh, he's struggling through long days, feeling worn out, foggy, while visitors are coming to his house, uh, offering well wishes for his recovery. He doesn't like it. Just 25 days later, April 28th, Ed decides no more drugs. After talking it over with his wife, Katie, who does not like pills, uh, she suggests that he go back to Dr. Terrell, have his toes pulled on. The two agree, agree that he's not going to take his medicine anymore. Neither one of them know what the fuck they're doing. Ed perks up initially when he gets off the drugs, but very soon he becomes anxious and hostile. Starts having nasty headaches. Feels like his head is going to explode again. Uh, several times, Katie finds him standing in the middle of a room, literally pulling on his hair, sometimes pulling it out, screaming that it's on fire. Probably should have forced him to go back to the hospital again at this point, you know, uh, work on having him committed. But that doesn't happen. Katie doesn't know what to do. Uh, she knows that if she tells him what's going on now, they're going to try and get Ed to go back on the drugs. She doesn't want to do that. But Ed's constant talk of God and the devil locked in combat, his organs mysteriously disappearing or moving, uh, him complaining about people listening in on his thoughts. Uh, this is all scaring her because it's fucking terrifying. Ed's hearing things. He claims that God is speaking to him in his brother Dan's voice and that Satan is speaking to him in a woman's voice telling him that Katie is preventing him from achieving salvation. He's having visions of God surrounded by angels warning Ed against listening to the devil. At night, he's prowling around the house, talking to himself, singing, uh, trying to read his Bible. It's something out of a horror movie. If you're watching this as a movie, you're worried that something really bad is going to happen to Katie and something really bad is going to happen to Katie. May 2nd, 1992, a Saturday night, Ed announces to Katie that he's going to shoot himself. To prevent this, Katie goes up, uh, finds, you know, Ed's uh, 22, 22 rifle, uh, his 410 and 12-gauge shotguns, wraps all, all three weapons up in a blanket, hides them in the shed. Uh, he now does not shoot himself, but his behavior gets more extreme. He's speaking gibberish in a high, squeaky voice oftentimes. Uh, he's doing shit like hanging his arms out of windows upstairs, telling uh, everybody's going to jump. Uh, he's opening all the windows of the house, even though it's 40 fucking degrees outside. I feel so sad for their kids. They're watching all this. I feel sad for him. Dude, need a real help. One day, Ed's leaning out the window again when Katie tries to push him out of the way, right? He, uh, he lets go, causing them both to fall on their backs with Katie on top of him. Katie gets, or Ed gets up, throws a punch that misses Katie's face, but connects with the window, spraying them both with shards of glass. As Katie then sweeps up the glass, Ed goes to another window, climbs out onto the roof and jumps. Luckily, it's only 10 feet off the ground, so he doesn't hurt himself. Uh, he does land on a pile of dirt and then throws his arms skyward in a V like an Olympic gymnast. <laughs> Something is really funny about that to me, right? That part of it. Nailed it! Just arms up, nailed it! Uh, picture him bowing to imaginary judges. And then, uh, you know, they give him perfect tens and he runs off. Uh, he sprints for the road. Some family members take off in a buggy after him. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. Uh, they manage to catch up to him, haul him inside. Uh, but then Ed is able to fight them off. He ends up tearing one side of the canvas buggy uh, off as he escapes again. He eventually does go back to the house, though. Uh, this shit goes on for days. He'll fall asleep for a little while, out hard like a baby. Then he'll wake up. Start running around, sometimes running out of the house, just doing wild shit, uh, smashing his fist through windows, uh, lying on the floor and talking to himself, crawling around on hands and knees, again, barking like a dog, uh, screaming about the devil, screaming about God, screaming about his heart not being in the right spot. His mother-in-law, Emma, the smartest Amish character in this saga by far, decides she is going to help again, this time by sending her son-in-law to the Jones Memorial Health Center in Jamestown, New York, a actual mental health clinic. Instead of calling the paramedic, the family decides to do it by themselves. They tie uh, Ed's limbs up with rope while he's asleep, and then they have a neighbor drive them all to Jamestown. At the hospital, Ed tells the doctor that uh, he's, he's not mentally ill. He just has a bad case of liver cancer. Why does he say that? Because he's out of his fucking mind. 
He's in the middle of a, of a full-blown psychotic episode, right? Completely detached from reality. Uh, he's denied visitors for the first week. They do obviously admit him for, you know, being very mentally ill. Uh, then on the eighth day, Katie, their three children, and Emma visit him. Ed's response, cool and aloof. Katie sees with dismay. Uh, he looks thin and pale, dry, flaky skin. She finds out he's getting released in two days after 10 days in the hospital. So May 15th, he's released. Uh, he's only out of the hospital for four days before he decides again to stop taking his medicine. Awesome, with Katie's full support. Sweet. Why take medicine when you can just have your handwriting analyzed to find out how many fucking toe pulls you need? May 21st, 1992, Ed goes to Cambridge Springs to see Dr. Terrell. Thank God this quack is uh, dead now. He died back in 2006. Uh, before dying, though, this son of a bitch ran his batshit crazy practice for 55 years. Found his obituary. Ed gets his toes pulled, gets his feet rubbed, and gets prescribed more blackstrap molasses here after, you know, having his handwriting more analyzed again. Uh, and he feels great now. He feels great and never suffers uh, from paranoia, delusions, or hallucinations again. Woo! Hail Nimrod! Hail Dr. Titos! No. Uh, this does nothing for him. Uh, you know, he just becomes uh, like he was before this happened again. Uh, you know, Ed, uh, lucid for the time being, uh, tries to talk to Katie about divorce, saying it won't be wrong if they do it the Christian way, but Katie doesn't want to. And then, and then they continue to limp along for months. Luckily, because of the way schizophrenia works, uh, he's not in a state of active phase psychosis uh, for a while. It, it goes dormant uh, a couple months before his next full-blown episode. He's also not mentally well. He's not feeling well. Uh, untreated schizophrenia is such a brutal affliction. You know, he's still, uh, you know, too tired to work in the machine shop, unhappy at home, uh, too jittery to socialize. Uh, he, he continues to see Dr. Terrell, who is now saying, how the fuck did this idiot stay in business for half a century? Now he's saying that he's determined that the real source of Ed's ailments is his right foot and ankle. During one visit, uh, he literally gives Ed's ankle a, a good hard twist, per- pulls hard on one of his toes, pronounces him cured. You're cured. It was your ankle. Sorry, I didn't catch it. It was your ankle before. I thought it was just your toes. But the ankle was also a problem. I hate this guy. If, if I lived near where he's buried, I, I might have been tempted to take a break doing my research on this episode to go piss on his grave. Ed is, of course, not Kurt. Let's skip ahead a few months to 1993 now. That February, cooped up in the house with the kids due to the snow, Ed now starts seeing a giant rabbit peering into the house through a window and looking at him. God, can you imagine? Ed, Ed, are you, are you okay, honey? Are you, are you doing okay? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm good. I just... <laughs> I just, I just wish that giant rabbit would stop staring at me. I don't like being stared at by giant rabbits. Uh, Dr. Titos probably twisted the wrong ankle. Uh, Ed spends most of that winter closed up in his bedroom where he naps, obsessively reads his Bible, sometimes goes on weird rants. Cool. Uh, Katie's left to mind the children, do her household, cho- household chores, care for her very sick husband. Uh, he becomes so sick, he eventually loses faith in Dr. Titos. He won't even, he won't even see Dr. Titos anymore. He won't even drink blackstrap molasses. When Katie tries him to get, uh, get him to drink it, Ed accuses her of trying to kill him with poison. March 15th, 1993, Monday morning. Ed's dad and brother Dan come over to help Katie paint an upstairs bedroom. Ed actually pitches in for a little while, but then he says, you know, he can't continue. He's, he's got a headache. He's dizzy. It's always the same thing. He goes to bed. Uh, around five, the men and Katie finish up the bedroom. Mr. Gingrich passes up Ed's bedroom to say goodbye, sees Ed busy reading the Bible, watches him launch into a wild-eyed, disjointed, babbling gibberish sermon. Mr. Gingrich now really finally starts to understand that Ed maybe does have a severe mental problem that might only uh, be cured by modern medicine. He asks his son if Ed has any objection to being examined by a doctor again, real doctor. Ed said he doesn't, but he doesn't want to be stuck in a hospital again. 
That evening, Mr. Gingrich calls Atlee, Joe, and Dan, right? His uh, three closest brothers come to the house, talk about what should be done with Ed. And brother Joe comes up with a great idea. This is fucking solid. He says, what if they just held Ed down and forced him to drink Whipple? Time to chug away that mental health illness with some Whipple Power Brain Edition. Feeling a little fragile, you fucking crybaby? Feeling sad? Anxious? Tired of seeing giant rabbits looking into your windows? Worried about your heart falling out of your chest? Close your crazy eyes and pound some Whipple Power Brain Edition. Made with DMT, LSD, shrooms, bleach, gasoline, coconut milk, MCT oil, fish oil, motor oil, greasy forehead oil, dingo balaba, stem cells, Adderall, Whipple Power Brain Edition is guaranteed to drastically change the way you feel and think. For better or for worse? How the fuck did I know? All I know is you're a huge pussy if you don't give it a shot. So fuck you, fuck your family, and drink Whipple. Power Brain Edition, now available in the following flavors. Root beer, blackstrap molasses, and does anyone else see the goddamn gremlin? Uh, no. That is not what Brother Joe's uh, uh, idea is, unfortunately. Uh, his idea, though, is uh, uh, equally ridiculous. Uh, he has just heard about an Amish faith healer named Jacob Troyer, who, how cool is this, can heal people by looking into their eyeballs. This is even better than toe pulling and foot rubbing and ankle twisting. The ultimate non-invasive medical procedure, stair therapy. Get gazed back into health. Uh, Don't even have to keep drinking that black strap molasses, right? This is a lower calorie treatment. Uh, The plan is now to get Katie to agree to this and take Ed to see uh, this fucking witch doctor ASAP. It sometimes feels like a Fairly Brother or, 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 uh, you know, Three Stooges movie. So many complete idiots in the story. The, the Amish really do live as they intend to like it's the late 17th century in some of the worst possible ways. Uh, Mr. Gingrich, to his credit, doesn't love this plan, but he also doesn't know what to say when his sons point out that Ed went to a hospital twice and he's still not well. Uh, his sons uh, strongly believe that modern medicine is a sham. In the end, Mr. Gingrich agrees to go see the guy who stares at people to figure out uh, how to cure them. Toe pulling and staring. How can you think that these treatments might work but not trust Western medicine? Uh, 10 the next morning, Tuesday, March 16th, Atlee and Dan go over to the machine shop where they find Ed in the smoky, half-lit, foul-smelling shack, sitting on a crate, reading his Bible. They ask him what's going on, and he replies that he has just realized that his illness is uh, no big deal, right? It's just God's way of forcing him to choose between a life devoted to Jesus or an eternity in hell. No faith healer needed, bros. I'm good. All part of God's plan. Now, if you excuse me, I need to bark like a dog and spit the ceiling until I sort this mess completely out. Then after a few moments, Ed uh, launched into an angry tirade, uh, accuses his brothers of trying to poison him with Katie uh, via the blackstrap molasses. The brothers now convinced Ed is actively suicidal. He's uh, constantly talking about death. They resolve to figure out something quickly. March 17th, 1993, a Wednesday and Katie's birthday. Also uh, a day of snowstorm lands. Instead of staying inside, celebrating with his wife and children, Ed, in the middle of another psychotic episode, now sits in the freezing machine shop reading his Bible. The brothers really want to take him to see Jacob Troyer, but the snow is coming down too hard. Dan Gingrich calls Sid Workman to come over to help. Sid was a uh, 52-year-old service representative for an electric engine firm, also a neighbor and friend of the Gingriches. Uh, he had dinner with Katie and Ed uh, in the past. Uh, they'd had dinner with him at his place. Uh, Ed had cut lumber for Sid, and in the summer, Sid had brought the Gingriches ice. He knew that about a year before, Ed had developed some serious mental health problems, uh, knew that Ed had been taken from his home to a psychiatric unit up in Erie. Uh, Sid had even driven Ed's wife, Katie, and several of Ed's siblings to visit Ed a few weeks later uh, after he'd been taken to that other mental health you know, facility in Jamestown. What he didn't know was that Ed had stopped taking his medication after each hospitalization. 
Uh, when Sid arrived at the machine shop, he could tell his friend not doing well. His eyes seemed glassy, kind of spacey, he'd say. Sid suggested uh, he should see a doctor and then goes inside to talk it over with Ed and Katie. Ed, uh, you know, uh, or, or sorry, goes it over to talk about uh, with Katie and um, Katie's, oh my gosh, Ed's dad, Dan. Um, and then Ed comes in to join the conversation. Ed confesses that he is thinking about suicide. Knowing that the old order Amish don't have cars, uh, Sid offers to drive Ed wherever he needs to go. The family then names a doctor, they say, in uh, Punxsutawney, where that little uh, gopher pops up or whatever he's called. Now, I didn't write that in my notes, but I know that Punxsutawney Phil is the ground groundhog. There we go. Uh, so they're going to go see Jacob Troyer. So they're not going to go see a doctor, a con man. Uh, they're going to see someone who uh, may also be mentally ill. Darkness is approaching. Punxsutawney is almost 100 miles southeast, but Sid offers to drive any, anyways right away. He's a hell of a neighbor, a good friend. Goes home to change, comes back in his Chevy Lumina. Ed, Katie, four other family members pile in. For hours, they drive over snowy roads. Ed sits in the back seat, moaning, uh, while Dan, uh, his his dad, uh, massages his his feet. So that's that's cool. That's, I'm sure that helps. Uh, it was not until about 10:30 p.m. that they reached the doctors. Sid is now crushed to find out that Jacob is not a doctor. He's an Amish herbalist and an eye reader. Mm-hmm. He's an eye reader, doctor eye reader. All of the family members uh, went into Dr. Staring Contest's house. Uh, doctor, not a doctor, stares for a while into Ed's eyes, finds out what he needs, gives him a couple small bottles of herbs that are going to knock that shit right out. And uh, all it costs is 340 bucks. Sid's pretty upset that they didn't go to a real doctor, not being Amish. Uh, pretty easy for him to see that this Jacob person is full of shit. Uh, Ed, of course, is now cured. The staring plus the herbs did what the toe pulling would not. He's 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 back. Uh, he's mad. He wasted so much time on ankle twisting. No, on the way home, Ed is lethargic and quiet. Katie tells Sid that she'll, uh, you know, bake him some bread to pay for the trip. He's not worried about the bread. He's worried about Ed. By the time they make it back home, it's 2.30 in the morning, Thursday, March 18th. Everyone's exhausted. As Katie disappears into the house, Sid has no idea this will be the last time he'll ever see her alive. According to court testimony, Edward passed the night calmly, then woke up feeling terrible again and thinking crazy. It's weird that the herbs didn't work. The family decides to bring him to a real doctor again. Dr. Tight Toes. Wish I was kidding. That afternoon, Ed's old friend, Richard Zimmer, Dick Zimmer, 2.0, old Dickie Zim, picks up Ed, Katie, one of their kids, another neighbor in his uh, club cab pickup uh, for their afternoon quack appointment. Ed is not doing well at all. He keeps saying he has to find himself. I got to find myself. He keeps complaining about hearing voices, not being able to sleep. Uh, again, he says he's thinking of suicide. When they arrive at Dr. Tight Toes, Ed goes in first. Uh, Dr. Titos would later testify in court that Ed said he was suffering from sleeplessness, anger, and sweats. And uh, Dr. Titos would testify at Gingrich's trial saying, I manipulated him. I adjusted his head. I'm sure that helped a ton. Also, uh, hoping there were some eye rolls in court when that idiot said that. He and Dr. Staring Contest can both go get fucked. Uh, Dr. Titos explained later, outside the courtroom, uh, that this time he uh, administered a scalp massage and gave Ed liver pills, whatever those are. After Ed is treated, but not really treated, Zimmer uh, goes in and tells uh, the chiropractor that, you know, he's not feeling good either. He's curious about what's what's this guy about. He says, uh, Dr. Titos told him he was getting an infection, manipulated just one of his toes, sent him out, told him to come back in a month. (laughs) And he was billed 50 bucks. And then he got got furious. Storming out, he talks with Ed about how they should see real doctors, someone who could actually help with their problems instead of that fucking idiot. Ed doesn't want to go though. On the way home, the women in the car start talking about a wedding dinner that evening for Noah and Lavina Hertzler. Katie plans to drive herself to the dinner in the family buggy. On the way, she'll stop and pick up her sister-in-law, Anna Gingrich. It's decided that Ed not go to the wedding celebration. You know, he's uh, he's not feeling well. 
It's agreed that one of his brothers will stay home with him while others in the family attend the wedding. But before his brother Atlee can make it over to watch Ed while Katie is getting ready to go to the wedding, tragedy strikes. That afternoon, Ed wakes up from his nap. It's almost time for Katie to go. She's washing dishes, singing to herself. Ed is sobbing in the other room. She doesn't stop singing. This kind of shit is uh, par for the course now. But suddenly the crying stops. The house grows quiet. A few moments later, Katie turns around, sees Ed towering over her with rage in his eyes. Without uttering a word, he slams a fist in the middle of her face, smashes her mouth and nose, knocks her prayer cap into the sink. Her legs give out. She collapses to the floor. Uh, little just-turned-three-year-old Mary, standing in the kitchen behind her dad, begins to cry as her dad punches her mom over and over again in the face. Katie yells for her oldest son, Daniel, before she loses consciousness to run for help, to tell his uncle Dan. Daniel, six years old, runs to his uncle's house, coatless and barefoot, half mile away. When he gets there, he says, come over quick, dad's sick. This is so fucking sad. Dan immediately runs to his brother's house. As he approaches the house, also three-year-old Enos, days away from turning four, uh, comes out onto the porch. His face is red. He's crying, terrified. Dan goes inside. As his eyes adjust to the dark interior, he sees Katie stretched out on her back between Ed's knees as he straddles her chest and is still punching her face what's left of it. She's already dead. She's battered beyond recognition. Dan screams for Ed to get off her, tackles him. But when they both clamber to their feet, Dan realizes now if he doesn't get out of the house, Ed is going to kill him too. He turns, he flees to a neighbor's house to find a telephone. Ed, with a mind that could not be more detached from reality at this point, does not run after his brother. Instead, he goes outside, puts on his knee-high barn boots. Then he goes back into the kitchen where he finds Enos and Mary standing frozen next to their mother's corpse. A little irritated that, uh, you know, their uncle just fucking left him there for this. Seems pretty fucked up. Uh, adding to this tragedy, I hope these kids were too young for them to remember any of this a few years later. While Enos and Mary blankly watch on, Ed starts stomping on Katie's face, crushes her skull completely, right? Then he rips off her clothing, kids still watching. He opens up her belly with a kitchen knife, right? Through a seven-inch gash, he removes her heart, lungs, spleen, liver, kidneys, ovaries, intestines, stacks them in a neat pile beside, beside the corpse. Then he sticks his knife into that pile, picks up his Bible, drops it into uh, the flames of the wood-burning stove, then takes Enos's hand, puts little Mary on his shoulders, tells him he's going to take him down to Grandpa's house. My fucking God. Obviously, poor Katie, but also poor Enos, poor Mary. Poor everyone involved. Uh, on his way down, he sees Ron Alexander, a sawmill customer who'd gotten his car stuck in the snow. Uh, Ed just, you know, puts the children on the snowbank, takes some time to help Ron get the vehicle back on the road. Like, nothing's happened, nothing's wrong. And I don't know if this guy just doesn't notice all the fucking blood on him, but uh, as Ron pulls away, Dick Zimmer uh, comes up in his truck, offers Ed and the kids a lift. Ed says, no, nah, I'm good. I want to walk. Now the Mill Village ambulance crew pulls up. They see Ed walking up the road with two of his kids. Momentarily, they think things are going to be okay. Maybe he changed shirts. Didn't say in the sources, but obviously he's not alarming people with the way he's looked as far as blood. Uh, Assistant Fire Chief Andrew McLaughlin is told to go up and check out the house, seeing as that uh, he'd been there roughly a year earlier. Uh, that was the time that Ed had gone berserk, howling like a dog, cackling, spitting, fighting like hell as his brothers and the ambulance crew wrestle him into, into restraints. Uh, this day, McLaughlin has ridden in the back of the ambulance on the way to the hospital in Erie and listened, or that day, excuse me, McLaughlin had written, ridden in the back of the ambulance on the way to the hospital in Erie and had listened uh, you know, to Ed whisper that his heart was loose, that he was drowning inside, and he's hoping things are not worse than that now. Obviously, things are way fucking worse. Uh, when he sees Ed, Calm and quiet with his kids, Enos and Mary, next to him, he initially breathes sigh of relief. Surely things couldn't be that bad, though he couldn't tell why Ed was talking about how his people would understand everything. What McLaughlin found as he stepped uh, up to, onto the small porch and pushed open the front door to the Spartan Amish house 
uh, that cold afternoon, March 18th, 1993, was a scene from a fucking nightmare. The naked body of Katie, one day past her 29th birthday, laying face up on the floor, her skull completely obliterated. Her internal organs laying on the floor in a pile beside her along with a small, you know, curved paring knife. Nearby lay a pile of Amish women's clothes. Stunned, McLaughlin radios back to the uh, to an EMT to keep a close watch on Ed uh, and the kids to send police over right away. Ed is taken into custody the moment they arrive. The arrest affidavit notes Edward Gingrich was advised of his rights and he admitted he had killed Katie. Back at the police station, Ed is advised of his Miranda rights and signs the waiver form, God willing. Okay. After his initial unrecorded session in the interrogation room, the detectives drive Ed to Cambridge Springs where he is officially arraigned. Meanwhile, several Amish boys who had heard what happened arrive at the Hertzler wedding dinner. They summon Katie's father. Katie's parents, expecting her to arrive shortly, she is, told uh, told of his daughter's murder. A stunned Levi gasps, walks slowly to his wife, and only says, Ed's not being nice to Katie. We have to go. Understatement of the fucking century. I'm sure he just wasn't trying to alarm her. Uh, in front of everyone. By one o'clock in the morning in Cambridge Springs, detectives in the interrogation room have placed a tape recorder in front of Ed. The recorder's turned on. One of the investigators uh, begins speaking. Ed, do you know what a tape recorder is? Uh-huh, Ed replies. I explained to you and I read you the form that says you have the right to remain silent and whatnot. You remember that? Do you understand? Ed stares at the investigator momentarily before shaking his head. No, you do not, the investigator asks. You understand the stuff you say can be held against you about what, what went on today. Do you understand that? How do you mean? Ed asks. Well, things that you say could be held against you in a court of law. You understand that? Yeah. And religion, Ed responds. Law and religion. And you have the right to an attorney. You understand what an attorney is? Yeah. So you understand that? Yeah, Ed says. But in our religion, we will, uh, but, but in our religion, we will not have done that. The investigator replies, We have to go by the law, and the law says I have to tell you this. Do you understand? No, says Ed. You have the right to an attorney. Do you understand that? Yeah, Ed says, adding, yeah, what I'm thinking, my mind is confused. I'm going to tell you that right now, but the reason we don't use the number, the social security number, because of the beat, the beat somewhere, the computer. In fact, we we can track our minds. We can feel it. Ed is obviously confused. Having a hard time focusing, you know, his mind uh, as the interrogation continues. The investigator is trying to get him back uh, onto the proper conversation. They ask him why he killed Katie. And he says, for some reason, I think we can still save her. No, we cannot save her. Katie is dead. And you know, Katie is dead. The investigator replies. Then bizarrely, uh, Ed says, yeah, I know. Why did I kill her? I felt it was a gain. A gain for who? A gain for us people, Ed replies. All the people? Yeah, not just my religion. He says, then they meander for a while. An investigator asks uh, Ed point blank while Ed removed all of Katie's organs from the top down. Ed asks, you know how we, the human being, were made? And the investigator replies, yes, from the top down? That's right, Ed says. I had it in my mind that if I worked from the top down, then he pauses. I'm so lost. I, I don't know what to say. Fuck, this dude needed so much help. His mind is shattered. The remainder of the interrogation lasted for approximately an hour, during which Ed tries his best to describe the murder and his problems prior to the murder. Most of his statements are incomprehensible gibberish. Then Ed is taken to the Crawford County Jail around two in the morning, placed in a holding cell. Following an autopsy, uh, Katie remains; uh, her remains are delivered to Ed's father's house. Uh, normally, an Amish wake is held at the deceased residence, uh, but you know the community decided that Dan Gingrich's house would be the best place to gather. While the men saw to the digging of Katie's grave, her mom and sisters took it upon themselves to wash and prepare her body. Rather than dress her in her wedding gown, Katie's body is wrapped in black linen and placed in a pine coffin. 
coffin, then bridged across two chairs for the viewing, not open casket, thank God. Um, and then, you know, uh, she would be buried the next day, March 20th. As preparations for Katie's funeral are taking place, Ed is moved from the jail to a state mental hospital in North Warren, Pennsylvania for a psychiatric evaluation. During the move, uh, Ed starts thinking that the officers t- are taking him to the woods to kill him and argues with them before finally agreeing to cooperate. Just under two days after Katie's death, uh, March 20th, 1993, Amish mourners from uh, Amish mourners from Ontario, Eastern Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York, and Indiana begin to arrive at Dan Gingrich's farm. Over 200 friends and family members gather to offer their condolences and pay their respects. Uh, the sermon led by Bishop Shetler lasts for approximately 45 minutes. Uh, there were no flowers. The tone was hopeful, yet full of uh, admonition for the living. There was no eulogy, no personalized statements of respect or praise for Katie. Following the sermon, Katie's casket is loaded into an Amish buggy, transported to an Amish cemetery down the road from the Gingrich farm. After her coffin is lowered into the ground by felt straps, a hymn is spoken but not sung prior to filling in the burial hole by hand. In the end, fresh dirt and a simple tombstone mark her grave. Following the burial, everyone gathers for a funeral dinner. October 2nd, 1993, Ed's attorneys at a routine pre-trial, pre-trial discovery hearing announced to the court that, surprising to no one listening to this, they're planning on using, excuse me, the insanity defense. In January, Dr. Lawson F. Bernstein Jr., a professor of psychiatry from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, is hired by the defense. Following his review of Ed's confession and a one-on-one interview with the defendant, Dr. Bern- Dr. Bernstein determines that Ed lacked the mental capacity to appreciate the nature of his act and therefore could not discern right from wrong. As the defense team worked to build their insanity defense, the prosecution was busy seeking experts of their own. In February, the prosecution sent the psychiatric reports to Dr. Philip J. Resnick, professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. And they don't get the uh, uh, letter from him that they were hoping for. In March, a uh, uh, letter to the prosecution, Dr. Resnick writes the following. It is my opinion that the authors of the reports had a reasonable basis for concluding that Mr. Gingrich was severely ill and did not know the wrongfulness of his killing his wife at the time of the homicide. Yeah, uh, this is not a bullshit insanity plea, obviously. He was on another planet when he killed Katie. Uh, with the trial date approaching, the prosecution offered the defense a plea bargain. They'll accept a plea of mentally ill, but guilty of murder in the third degree in exchange for a sentence of 10 years. Ed would then be eligible for parole after serving just five years behind bars. Nonetheless, the defense fe- felt that the prosecution could lose their case at trial and actually decline this offer. The defense were unaware when they did this that there would be a major snag in their defense plans. Ed's attorneys had taken it for granted that his family would be willing to stand behind him and testify on his behalf. And the prosecution had done the same, thinking they would have willing witnesses to use against Ed. However, the Amish community treated both the defense and the prosecution with hostility Every member refused to testify unless subpoenaed. Ed, it quickly became apparent, uh, had been shunned. Fucking Amish. Uh, on the morning of March 24th, 1994, at the Crawford County Courthouse in Meadville, Pennsylvania, the trial of Edward Gingerich begins. Head prosecutor Douglas Ferguson opens with a brief address consisting of the events leading up to Katie's death and Ed's ultimate arrest. He stressed to the jury that Ed was not legally insane at the time of the murder. Fuck, he wasn't. Uh, and should not be excused for his actions. I mean, what he did was horrible, but God, he was beyond insane. Uh, Donald E. Lewis, appointed by the court to represent Ed, one of the uh, most successful criminal defense attorneys in the region at the time, wasted little time getting directly to the point as he took to the lectern. He told the jury, we are about to hear testimony that will stay with us forever. I am honored to be able to represent Edward Gingrich to protect his rights during this traumatic time in his life. Together, we will search for the truth because that is what a trial is about, a search for the truth. 
Following Lewis's opening speech, the court declared a 10-minute recess so the prosecution could prepare. As the jury filed back into the courtroom, they were greeted by the prosecution's first exhibit, a childlike drawing depicting Katie's corpse uh, produced uh, specifically for the jury. Some jury members will later say that it seemed like this trivialized Katie's death and may have indirectly led to Ed not getting a harsher sentence. The prosecution's first witness, Dr. Carl E. Williams, a forensic pathologist from Elwood City, Pennsylvania. Uh, Even though Dr. Williams had not performed Katie's autopsy, he's called to testify to the reports. The doctor who performed the autopsy, uh, Dr. Takashi Imajo, had since left the county to work in another state. The fact that the prosecution did not bother to bring in Dr. Imajo was yet another disturbing blunder. This error, in combination with the childlike drawing, suggested that the prosecution placed little importance on their evidence. Following Dr. Williams' explanation of the autopsy report, uh, old Dr. fucking dipshit Titos, Dr. Terrell, uh, wearing a blue suit, a five-gallon Stetson hat, uh, cowboy boots, is called to the stand and and questioned about the day of Katie's murder. Uh, Dr. Terrell said nothing to help or hurt the case because he was an absolute fucking moron who should have had his business shut down permanently and not been ever allowed to sell literally anything to literally anyone ever again. Katie's mother, Emma Shetler, subpoenaed by the court, the next to testify on behalf of the prosecution. Ed began to cry as she made her way to the stand. Ed's brother, Danny Gingrich, also subpoenaed, the next witness called by the prosecution. During Danny's testimony, he chronicled the events that took place the day of Katie's death, was asked to read the statement he had given to the state police on the night of Katie's murder. On cross-examination, the defense questioned Dan about his brother's mental problems and their trip to see Dr. Staring Contest, a.k.a. Jacob Troyer. Following Danny's testimony, the prosecution called an English sawmill customer, right, a non-Amish, to testify to Ed's state of mind and two Pennsylvania State Police Troopers to recount the events following Ed's ultimate arrest and confession. With their testimony complete, Prosecutor uh, Ferguson announced that the state had rested its case. Defense Attorney Don Lewis could not believe what he was hearing. The prosecution did not bother to produce one psychiatrist to testify to Ed's sanity, probably because he couldn't find one, or a toxicologist to debunk the theory that Ed might have been driven insane from the fumes in the workshop, or any of the Mill Village paramedics to describe the horrid crime scene. Maybe the prosecution didn't want him to be found guilty. Uh, the jury was left with very little knowledge of who Katie Gingrich was how she, or how she had suffered. The basis for Ed's defense relied heavily on proving that he was, uh, you know, severely mentally ill when he committed his crime, and that was pretty easy to do. Uh, Lewis relied on, on testimony from Dr. Bernstein, that professor of psychiatry from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, who'd interviewed Ed, and Dr. John J. Spikes, a toxicologist from Philadelphia. Dr. Spikes testified that the gunk fumes, as they're called, could have caused organic brain syndrome, right, when he's working in his machine shop, which could uh, have explained the murder. Organic brain syndrome is a state of diffuse cerebral dysfunction associated with the disturbance in consciousness, cognition, mood, effect, and behavior in the absence of drugs, infection, or a metabolic cause. Whether it was the gunk fumes or paranoid schizophrenia or some combination of the two, the defense argued Ed was not even close to being in a rational state of mind when he did what he did. Following closing arguments, the judge explained the difference between degrees of murder, uh, explained the legal definition of insanity. The jury then released for deliberations. Two days later, March 26th, a little more than a year after Katie's death, a Crawford County common pleas jury in Meadville found Gingrich guilty of involuntary manslaughter, but mentally ill during the murder of Katie. With this charge, it meant that Ed would still be required to serve time in jail, but that he would also receive psychiatric treatment while in prison. Uh, after the verdict is read, uh, the judge set the sentencing for May 2nd, 1994 and adjourned the court. Alternately, uh, alternatively, if he had not been found guilty by reason of insanity, he would have, have uh, he would have, Jesus Christ, he would have served no jail time 
at all. Uh, instead, he would have been sent to a mental institution until he was deemed safe enough to be released back into society. Meanwhile, more than 50 members of the Brown Hill Amish community uh, signed a petition advocating keeping Gingrich in a mental hospital forever. So now they're advocating he be put into a mental hospital, uh, get the kind of treatment they don't believe in once Katie's dead, once it's too late. Uh, the sentencing hearing for Edward Gingrich held a little over a month later, May 2nd, 1994. Following the presentation of a psychiatric evaluation, the prosecution shocked everyone present by handing Bishop Shetler's petition to the judge. The defense had presumed the hearing would be routine, were not prepared for Ed's own people to take such a strong stance against him now. Upon reviewing the information presented to him, listing to statements from both sides, the judge asked Ed if he had anything to say on his behalf. He just stood up and said, all I can say is I'm sorry to all the community that this has happened, and then just returned to his seat. Following Ed's brief statement to the court, he's sentenced to a minimum term of two and a half, two and one half years and a maximum of five years with credit for time served since his May 19th, 1993 incarceration a year earlier. So he's going to be eligible for parole starting late 1995. Feels too light for me, but I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know how long doctors would need to really stabilize someone who is uh, such a violent schizophrenic. Week after Ed's sentencing, May 9th, 1994, Katie's father, Levi, gets up from dinner, tells everyone that he wishes he could see his daughter, goes to bed, and never wakes up. Dude died of a broken heart. Another sad detail of the story. A few days later, he's buried next to Katie. November of 1994, just a year away from being possibly released, Ed claims to have received a visit from God, where he's been granted forgiveness for his crimes. And he wrote about this uh, experience soon after it occurred. So he's doing great. He wrote, it makes me feel like singing and uh, shooting for joy. Uh, I do not shout because of my surroundings, but I do sing something I have not felt like or done in the last perilous few years. So maybe he should have been committed to a psychiatric institution for life. Uh, Ed Gingrich denied his first bid for parole in December of 1995. Good call. A little over two years later, March 19th, 1998, at the age of 34, Ed is released from the State Correctional Institution in Mercer, Pennsylvania. While Ed was incarcerated, his three children that he had uh, shared with Katie had gone to live with his parents. Now that he's out, he wants to see him. Mm, I don't think so, dude. Insane or not, you can't exactly take back stomping their mom's head fucking flat in front of them. How about go away forever, leave an address with your parents, and if they ever really want to see you, they can find you. Uh, Ed's former community does not want to see him. Some of the families had even moved away to other settlements because they were afraid of his return. Ed's parents did not want to see him. Uh, Ed tried to prove he's different now. He moved into an Amish mental health hospital, which to me feels like it couldn't have been a hospital, located in Michigan, where you continue to receive ongoing treatment that probably wasn't treatment, uh, while trying to rejoin the community slowly. Uh, hopefully that community, that treatment he received there was more than, you know, toe pulling and blackstrap molasses and staring. Uh, then Ed moved to a different Amish facility in Indiana, which probably also wasn't very good to receive more, probably not good treatment. 2007, he decides it's time to move back to Crawford County. He rents a house near the Brown Hill Amish community. Uh, most of those who live there shunned him. Of course they do. Uh, he was taking medication now and would regularly check in with the nurse and a psychiatrist, a real psychiatrist and nurse. No more toe pulling. Dr. Titos had recently died. Thank God. Uh, Ed's trying to get better, to stay well. Uh, and his two sons, who are now teenagers, do decide to reconcile with him. And they start having visits with their father. His daughter, Mary, has no interest in seeing or speaking to him. So he decides to force her to see him. April of 2007, just a few months after he'd moved back into the community, Ed kidnaps Mary from a buggy she's riding on. Everyone is terrified he'd snapped again and he was going to kill her. Thankfully, she's found a few days later unharmed. Physically, at least. Uh, Ed is charged with kidnapping, sentenced to six months probation and fined $500. 
Then in February 2008, he's charged with another crime, illegally possessing and using a firearm while deer hunting. Yeah. Why? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, he's not supposed to uh, carry a gun, right? Jesus Christ. Uh, Ed pleads gu- uh, guilty to a misdemeanor charge in October of, the, of that same year and is sentenced to serve three months in Crawford County Jail. And then uh, no one in the Amish community will hear anything about Ed uh, until January of 2011 when he is found dead in a barn from an apparent suicide by hanging. He had hung himself in Cambridge Springs on the property where he'd been living with one of the attorneys who had represented him, George Shrek, for the past six months. George's wife, Stephanie, discovered Gingrich's body along with a message written in dust on top of a bucket that just read, forgive me, please. So sad. The community that shunned him uh, then held a ceremony after his death to honor him. He was buried in the local cemetery right next to Katie, the wife he had brutally murdered. Uh... Uh, why did they do that? Uh, would Katie have wanted that? I doubt it. Did Katie's family want that? Uh, did his daughter Mary want that? I doubt it. Uh, now everyone has to see the grave of the man who had brutally killed Katie whenever they visit her grave. Yet another decision by the Amish I find very questionable. Uh, with Ed Gingrich now dead and buried, let's hop on out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Uh, before we wrap up talking about Ed Gingrich, uh, let's lighten things up a bit uh, with two more ads. I know normally I don't have, you know, two kind of this late in the show, but I, I think you're going to want to hear them. Uh, Time Suck is brought to you today by Dr. Titos. Hey there, buckaroo. Question, how tired are your toes? If you're feeling sick, tired, unhappy, paranoid, anxious, constipated, if you have cancer, heart disease, if you're paralyzed, If you're less than 100% physically or mentally healthy in any possible way, I know one thing for sure. Your toes are too tight. Come on in for an almost free consultation with me, Dr. Tactos. Write a couple words for me in a piece of scratch paper. I'll feed it into my penmanship diagnostic Tron 5000. Then I'll know which toes I need to pull on, how hard, and exactly how much black strap molasses you'll need to stay healthy once I've properly loosened up your toe or toes. Bada boom, bada bang. You'll be right as rain. But you won't feel right if your toes are too tight. I'll say it again. You won't feel right if your toes are too tight. Come on in for an almost free consultation. My office is located on the corner of Quack Lane and Cuckoo Drive in the heart of Nutsville. Uh, Time Suck is also brought to you today by Dr. Staring Contest. Hello, friend. If you're feeling sick, please don't be tricked. Do not waste your hard-earned money on Dr. Titos. You don't need to have some dangerous quack painfully pulling on your toes to get your health back on track. You need me. Dr. Staring Contest to look into your eyes. Find out exactly what's wrong. Send you home with the proper healing herb blend. The right herbs combined with my special diagnostic supervision can quickly cure schizophrenia, herpes, blindness, diabetes, low IQ, being too short, being too tall, not being able to fly, bleeding too much from open wounds. Anything can be cured with herbs combined with my wizard stare. But nothing can be cured through toe pulling. Grow up. It's a fantasy. Stop listening to the giant rabbit watching you. Don't fall for its silly gimmicks. It's time to feel better. It's time to pay me to stare at you. 
Dr. Steering Contest Office House is located just off Yamashway Road, two miles north of BFA, Pennsylvania, one driveway past Danny and Danny's Barn Racers. So, you know, a little bit of rivalry between some of the sponsors. That was, uh, that was fun. I like it. The Amish Killer. That's how Ed is known across the internet, but maybe not a very fair description. While he certainly was an Amish killer, I feel like that name evokes uh, someone roaming Amish communities looking for people to hunt down. Also obscures the truth of Ed and Katie's story, that Ed never really wanted to be Amish, that he formulated multiple escape plans, though never got up the courage to leave, fearing excommunication. The name The Amish Killer also doesn't expose how Katie and Ed were socially pressured to get married in 1986, societally pressured by their community. And that soon after, Ed started exhibiting symptoms of a serious mental illness, an illness that the Brown Hill Amish community simply thought could be cured by prayer, hard work, maybe some toe pulls, some herbs, being stared at, blackstrap molasses. The moniker doesn't address how, even when Ed got psychiatric help, he was still surrounded by people who believed more in Dr. Taito's bullshit than actual medication, which he was encouraged to stop taking. The name doesn't speak to how this crime was totally preventable. If Ed wouldn't have had to choose between his community and his lifestyle, between one kind of religion and another, between being Amish and sick, or living in the modern world and being healthy, but with no support, sure seems like he would have left his faith and then he would have been, uh, been, uh, in all likelihood, much more receptive to seeking out and getting proper treatment. He also would not have felt uh, so much of the stress that seemed to have triggered some of his schizophrenic symptoms. What a brutal murder Ed not getting, uh, you know, treatment led to. On March 18th, 1993, while Ed and Katie's two younger children looked on, Ed not only killed his wife, he disemboweled her. He literally stomped on Katie's head, right, until it was completely destroyed, left her remains a, a, a pile of, of organs. He actually thought in his fractured mind that she was a tool of the devil being used to keep him from his salvation. And then speaking how severely mentally ill he was, he bizarrely seemed to believe, as he later said in an interrogation or alluded to, that he believed she could still be saved. Ed Gingrich's mind had deteriorated into a confusing funhouse of mirrors, not reflecting reality, right? A place full of angels and devils and mistrust and fear, a place not helped by the influence of his community and people like evangelical Dave Lindsay pumping more fear into his fearful mind. And his mind continued to function poorly in prison after months and months of treatment when he received a vision from God. He still struggled when he got out, when he kidnapped the daughter who didn't want to see him. He struggled right up until the end when he took his own life, January 14th, 2011. And then the community that had shunned him for so long after the murder of Katie now accepted him back one last time. Ed Gingrich was an Amish killer, but his story has so much more to it than that nickname reveals. What a cautionary tale. Do not allow any mental illness you might be struggling with to go untreated, Meatsack. Don't think you can pray away or folk remedy away serious mental illness. It doesn't work like that. If you think you or someone you might know could be struggling with schizophrenia, depression, bipolar disorder, anything where you don't just feel right in your head or they don't seem right in theirs, the least you can do is call. If you live in the U.S., the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. SAMHSA is a branch of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services outside the U.S., please just do an internet search for mental health crisis hotline. If for some reason that doesn't, uh, you know, uh, get you what you're looking for, you can also just dial up emergency services, which is 911 in the US. Do not sleep on mental illness. It doesn't go away. And as we were uh, reminded today, untreated mental illness can get very, very ugly with dramatic consequences. Let's head now to our takeaways where we will revisit some of what we learned today and also learn something new. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, 
on the night of March 18th, 1993, Ed Gingrich brutally murdered his wife, Katie Gingrich, at their house as two of their young children stood by watching while their oldest son ran away to get help. But help would not arrive in time. Ed, in the midst of a complete psychotic break from reality, thinking his wife was a tool of the devil, sent to prevent his salvation, he quickly pummeled Katie to death with his fists, stomped on her with heavy work boots, uh, stripped her naked, disemboweled her on the kitchen floor. Number two, Ed clearly suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and would be diagnosed with it during his first hospital stay. Ed fit the progression of the disorder perfectly, first becoming withdrawn and angry, irritated and nervous, before progressing finally to full-on psychosis where he believed he was seeing visions of God and the devil that his family was trying to poison him. The correct treatment for paranoid schizophrenia is psychotherapy combined with heavy antipsychotics. Ed bailed on that, went his day with Dr. Titos, right? His fucking ankle-twisting, foot-rubbing, black-strap molasses bullshit. Snake oil does not treat schizophrenia. Scientifically studied medication and treatment does. Number three, societal pressure to conform with the Amish way of life harmed both Ed and those around him, like the pressure that made him get married to Katie in the first place. His desires continually ignored by his community, which led to a lot of unnecessary stress, which quite possibly helped trigger the onset of his schizophrenia and increased the severity of its symptoms. I think the story also illustrates how important it is to live the life that works for you, not the life you might be told to live by those around you. You only get one shot down here for sure. Don't waste it living a life that isn't authentic to who you really are. Number four, Ed Gingrich died by suicide in January of 2011 after writing one last plea for forgiveness. Losing his community, even though he wanted to leave it for most of his young life, took an enormous toll on him. If only the Amish could have just let him be who he wanted to be when he was young. Instead, they waited, right, for him to to die before accepting him back into their community. Number five, new info, Ed Gingrich may have been the first man to have been convicted for murder. Uh, as an Amish person, but he's not the only Amish killer out there and his tale, not the only bizarre Amish true crime story either. Born on September 20th, 1950, Eli Stutzman was raised in an Amish community in Apple Creek, Ohio. Uh, People who knew Eli described him as quiet, withdrawn. The first of many suspicious deaths occurring around Eli happened in 1977. His wife, Ida, died in a barn fire. She was pregnant at the time. They already had a 10-month-old son, Danny. So many Dannys in the story. Uh, Eli claimed that Ida went into the barn to save some milking equipment and collapsed there and died. Others think he set the fire to cover up killing her. Soon after that, Eli went against Amish tradition by shaving his beard, using electricity in his home. This led him to being uh, shunned, uh, then leaving the Amish faith completely. In 1982, Eli and his son Danny moved to Colorado. Uh, Christmas Eve in 1985, authorities come across the frozen body of an unidentified boy in a ditch in Chester, Nebraska. The cause of death remained inconclusive, The boy, not identified after an initial investigation, was dubbed Little Boy Blue. And then when Reader's Digest published a story in 1987 about this case, it reached the whole nation, bringing in a whole bunch of tips. Chief among them was from a woman in Wyoming who thought she knew who the boy was. She said her family had cared for him a few months before his father picked him up, just days before the child was found dead. The boy her family cared for was Danny Stutzman, Eli's son. Eli had left his son with his, uh, with his family in the summer of 1985 before coming back in December of that year. The body was indeed confirmed to be Danny through a, uh, Danny's body through a palm print. Eli was then arrested in 1987 in Azle, Texas. He claimed that he uh, and his son had been driving from Wyoming to Ohio to spend time with family when Danny fell really sick and died. Eli said he panicked, left the body in the ditch for God to take care of him. Fuck out of here. What kind of dad? If he hasn't done something terrible or isn't severely mentally ill himself, just tosses her young son's dead body in a fucking ditch. Uh, terrible one. Uh, Eli, then, uh, after uh, this, sorry, scattered my notes there, uh, he drove to Salina, Kansas to meet a boyfriend. 
Uh, he, by this time, come out of the closet, was openly homosexual. With no evidence pointing to Eli killing Danny, even though there was so much suspicion, he was only convicted of abandoning a body and failing to report a death, sentenced to 18 months in prison. Then while serving the sentence, Eli becomes a prime suspect in another probable murder, the death of Glenn Pritchett, whose body was also found in a ditch in Austin, Texas in May 1985. He'd been shot in the head. Glenn had lived with Eli and Danny right before his death. In this case, Eli went on a trial in Austin after serving his sentence in Nebraska, and he was convicted of murder now. He'd served almost 13 years before being released on parole. And before he got out, digging further back into his past, authorities suspected him in the deaths of at least two other men. In late 1985, two murders had occurred in Durango, Colorado, when he was known to be there. The victims, Dennis Sleater, David Tyler. Authorities said the men all knew each other, were uh, all drug users who used together and were uh, all openly gay. Both of these victims had spent time with Eli right before they turned up dead. And a person matching Eli's description was seen near where Dennis's body was found, but never charged in these cases due to lack of evidence. After being paroled in 2005, Eli lived in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, then on January 31st, 2007, he was found dead in his apartment of an apparent suicide at the age of 56. He had slit his left wrist. Was he technically an Amish serial killer? Did he kill three men he was linked to? Uh, all thought to be romantically linked uh, to, to him, right? Uh, and his wife and unborn child and his son. Uh, maybe Eli Stutzman is the guy who really should be known as the Amish killer. The Amish normally very peaceful. But sometimes, you know, they get uh, some murderous bad apples, just like every other group of people here on Earth, unfortunately. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Amish killer, Ed Gingrich, has been sucked. Uh, Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for helping again this week. Thanks to uh, Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to the Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley for production. Thanks to Bitelixer for upkeep on the Time Suck app, Logan, Art Warlock, Keith for creating merch at badmagicmerch.com and for running socials with Lizzie and Chantres Hernandez. Uh, thanks to Sophie Evans for leading the research this week. Thanks to the all-seeing eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page. And thanks again to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad running Discord. More and more people uh, talking lately about how much uh, they're loving the Discord community. So good on all you Discord meat sacks. Thanks for uh, being you. Uh, you can easily link to Time Suck's Discord community via the Time Suck app. Um, next week on Time Suck, I'm having a hard time getting my brain out of this week. Man, it's just that his illness, just being untreated for so long, the way it progressed, so disturbing. This one's going to stick with me for a while. Uh, next week on Time Suck, we talk airlines. How do planes get where they should be on time? How do they choose what snacks to give out on flights? Where are the snacks made? Uh, what are the different prices for in-flight Wi-Fi across different airlines and how they determine those prices? Uh, JK, can you imagine how fucking boring all that would be? No, we're going to talk about an airline, a very unusual one, Air America. We're going to talk about the CIA, drug smuggling. Uh, covert operations, the real story, not the critically panned film starring Mel Gibson and Robert Downey Jr. Air America, uh, just about as far as you can uh, get from a modern commercial airline. Air America was a CIA secret airline in much of Southeast Asia following the end of World War II through uh, Vietnam. While it seemed to the outside world like it was simply offering uh, civilian flights, Air America pilots were actually transporting food, weapons, uh, personnel to the front lines of the fight against the spread of communism, and uh, perhaps delivering some opium. Two, uh, during the CIA's secret war in Laos, Air America aided or actually traded hundreds of thousands of dollars of opium cultivated by the Hmong people, at least hundreds of thousands, if not, you know, much more. According to the CIA's official byline, this was because the Laotian economy depended on opium, opium as its cash crop. So they were just helping out in order to prevent economic ruin and make it easier for them and their allies to fight the communist rebels. Possibly true. Uh, according to others, the CIA actively made money on the opium trade. Uh, Air America's history, long and fascinating. So many top secret missions, covert operations, uh, pretty shady stuff. So shady that when Air America employees tried to get their pensions after the Vietnam War ended, 
CIA turned around and said that those employees didn't need pensions because Air America didn't exist. How crazy is that? Uh, all that and more next week on Time Suck. I've already uh, started the research. It is fascinating shit. Uh, been too long since we delved into some of the CIA's covert antics. And right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. Got some good updates uh, on death from our recent Kevorkian and the Right to Die episode. Uh, this episode hit close to home for compassionate sucker Rick Dyers. Uh, uh, Dylers. Dylers. D Y L E. Uh, not Dick uh, Dylers. Rick Dylers. Rick, not Dick, writes. Hey, Dan, I just want to thank you for your last episode on Dr. K and Dr. Assisted and the Assisted Suicide. I appreciate how you approach all possibly controversial subjects from all sides of viewpoints. I try. Don't always do it, I don't think, but I try. Uh, that being said, the subject hit close to home for me and may have affected my allergies a few times. In May of 2018, my father passed away from lung cancer. Man, sorry to hear that. Once his cancer got to a point where doctors told him that they were out of ideas and that he was beyond medical care, him and I had long talks about what he wanted me to do when the time came. If he was needlessly suffering, he wanted me to know he wanted me to do whatever I could to end his suffering. When the time came and he was hospitalized, he had lost everything that made him the dad I knew. And for almost a week, he said, I'm sorry, for almost a week, he laid in a hospital bed simply saying, I'm done and please let me go. It was insanely difficult, but with help from the medical staff, we were able to end his suffering. It wasn't a uh, doctor assisted suicide, but I was glad that I was able to help ease unnecessary suffering. Thanks again for all you do. Your loyal sucker, Rick, feel free to use any of this info on the pod. Thanks for writing in, Rick. Uh, can't imagine how hard it was for you to do what you did. Sorry again, uh, if I was your father, I would have uh, been so proud of you for helping me in a very, very tough time. So grateful. No one should have to spend their final moments in unbearable pain if they don't want to. So glad your father was able to pass in peace and hail Nimrod. Uh, now for someone who works with the dying, who would like to clear up some hospice misconceptions. Sweet sucker, angel sucker. Miranda Stocker writes, thanks for educating everyone about hospice. I'm a visiting hospice nurse. And it is a common misconception that we kill people or that it's a death sentence. The death sentence is the disease. We come in to help keep the patient comfortable in their home when possible and support both the patient and their family. Another thing that is commonly believed is that morphine makes people die faster. Not true. It reduces the body's use of oxygen, which helps settle down shortness of breath, also called dyspnea. Anyway, thanks again for the hospice shout out. Three out of five stars wouldn't change a thing. Uh, well, thank you for what you do, Miranda, and thanks for educating us. What an incredibly tough job you have. I can't imagine how emotionally tough it is, and I bet you uh, I bet you make it look easy. Giving comfort to the dying, pretty damn noble profession, so good on you. Uh, so thankful that people like you do what you do. So three out of five stars for you as well. Uh, now another death-related message from an anonymous nurse and from someone whose opinion on the right to die debate changed after they started working in healthcare. Uh, tough-ass sack writes, Hello, Suck Master, Bad Magic Crew. I'm only a little bit into this week's episode on Dr. Kevorkian, but I had to send some of my thoughts in. I'm a nurse. I started out in a nursing home, worked there for several years before moving on. I've taken care of hospice patients, patients with ALS, dementia, Huntington's disease, Parkinson's disease, uh, patients dying of cancer, and some that just die without any advance warning. I've seen the fear that Dr. Kevorkian was talking about in his 60 Minutes interview, and the anguish of families watching their loved ones decline physically and mentally watching their personalities change to someone they don't know, watching parents forget their children, spouses not recognize each other. And I personally understand how many of these families feel, wanting some small amount of control back. My wife was recently diagnosed with Huntington's disease. 
It is a neurodegenerative disorder that will eventually lead to some level of cognitive impairment, movement dysfunction, and and eventually death. At this time, there's no cure for it, only medications to help with some of the motor symptoms. While she doesn't have any real symptoms yet, we both know what is coming. It's impossible to describe the feeling of absolute helplessness, knowing what will eventually happen. I don't want to lose my wife. However, should she decide in the future that she wants to end her suffering, I will stand beside her. It would be an absolute, it would be absolute hell, but I think it would be easier than watching her slowly decline into a shell of herself to have her not remember me and our life. For now, we're trying to live life to the fullest, enjoy every moment that we have with each other. I understand that many people are against physician-assisted suicide, wondering how we would regulate it, how to keep it from being abused or misused, worrying about death committees. Remember that from when Obamacare was first introduced? These are all valid points. But on the flip side is the cost and suffering of people who are terminally ill, who only have extreme pain to look forward to. I think those people should be allowed and out. Currently, if you go to your doctor and tell them you're suicidal, you're put in a mental ward or admitted to the hospital uh, and guarded to make sure you can't do anything. Psychologists come and interview you. Medications are started or stopped and you can't even pee in peace for fear you'll try to kill yourself on the toilet. But for those select few who have reached the end of a comfortable existence and only have pain and suffering left, I think they should be allowed to make that decision to have a painless, peaceful death. I'll admit I was against it before I started working in healthcare. But seeing suffering firsthand can really change your perspective. I apologize for the length and rambliness of the email. If this makes it on the show, please leave my name off. Love everything you guys do. It's a nice escape from reality, especially the reality we're living in right now. Hail Nimrod. May uh, he keep you all in his blessings, excuse me, and keep on sucking. Your loyal, anonymous, bad magician. Well, anonymous nurse, uh, sorry you are dealing with something so fucking heavy right now. Uh, sounds like you're handling your wife's illness uh, about as good as anyone can. Can Sounds like you both are. Uh, I appreciate you explaining how your viewpoint changed uh, once you got into healthcare. I think oftentimes our feelings about something change when an issue becomes personal or, or real for us. Right? That's why it's so important to try and put yourself in other people's shoes when thinking about all kinds of stuff, social issues, laws, all manner of different circumstances. Think, what if it was me in that situation? What if it was someone I love? Would my opinion remain the same? What is actually fair and ethical here? Uh, thanks for your thoughts, Meet Zach. I hope we can continue to be a nice escape for you to uh, return to. And uh, one more. Uh, one of the members of the Cult of the Curious almost ended up living in the former home of last week's serial killer, Robert Yates. I'm sure more Yates uh, updates are coming. I'm recording this right after that came out. Uh, Spokane Sack Noah Hollister writes, this is a crazy connection. Hey, you mushmouth mother. Ed Camper voice, fucker. <laughs> uh, finally, that Robert hates suck. Been waiting for this one. I grew up about two minutes away from the Sprague track over by Liberty Park. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know exactly this. Uh, was in high school at LC when they caught that crazy fucker. Anyways, after he was caught and everything was over and done with, his house up on the hill went up for sale. And my stepfather was adamant that we had to buy it. It was listed for a great price. Yeah, I bet it was. And so we went up and checked it out, knowing full well whose house it was. Everything was going just fine until the realtor a realtor had to disclose that there was a body buried next to the bedroom window. That's what my mother checked out. Stepdad tried to convince her to just go for it anyway. Uh, it's not there anymore, but the stigma that came with it was just too much for my mom. Sorry, not sorry for the long email. Wouldn't change a thing about the podcast. Three out of five stars. Uh, crazy connection, Noah. Uh, hope your stepdad wanted it because it was listed as a great price and not because Yates had lived there. That'd be super creepy. If, if uh, you know, a body having been buried right outside the bedroom window was like a huge selling point for him. It's like, come on, it's sexy. What? Yeah, nothing. I mean, it's, it's a good price. 
Uh, I just looked up the real estate estimate for that house. Uh, you might not want to tell your stepdad that it is more than tripled in value uh, since he chose or wasn't allowed to buy it. Uh, thanks for the messages, everyone. Hail Nimrod and uh, appreciate you sending in uh, great updates each and every week. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks again for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Uh, please don't try and treat schizophrenia with uh, toe pulling or staring this week. Uh, please don't try and cure fucking anything that way, except for maybe a jammed toe or an eyelash just falling into your eye. Mostly this week, just, you know, uh, business as usual. Just keep on sucking. Add Magic Productions. It's, it's in my chest. Oh, I, it's uh, it's pneumonia. I can tell by your handwriting. Okay. So uh, all I got to do is uh, one quick <laughs> twist of your uh, your pinky toe, <laughs> okay. and you're gonna be all better. You're gonna be all better. Okay. All right. All right so don't, even, don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. Yeah. <coughs> that's a different cough. <coughs> that's just a. What's this one? That's a uh, menopause. Oh. Which, uh, toe, which toe is that? That is, I have to hold this one and flick that one. Oh. Boom. Got her already. Yeah. Thanks, Doc. <laughs> yeah. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.